Mr. I don't even, can you just say it? My name's Clay Newcomb. There you go. Our podcast radio. Yep, this is just, the W podcast. That's right. <laughs> oh. The W podcast. Clay. Returning guest. But yeah, returning yeah. guest. Retur- yeah, it's a I big guess deal. Yeah. He's like it's like uh he's like Clark Kent before. He was he was Bear Hunting magazine guy and now he's Clay <laughs> Superman. <Newcomb>. So <laughs> So uh, guys, he came back. You drag him around the woods. He don't kill a bear, and then he still comes back to hang out. So he must be an all right guy. Yeah, man. Uh, no, this is this is like old home turf talking to you boys. <laughs> this is good. Um, so we have we have a what we call around the shop a nine month old Clay Newcomb baby. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> You're gonna need to explain that one to him. Yeah, we have to explain. We we got a podcast that we did when you came out here to visit with us and we couldn't, we were waiting to, to get it released because um, some details, which we'll try and talk about here. But, but anyways, we, when we were driving there, I told Clay, I said, Hey Clay, I'm going to let you take the lead on this podcast. Cause we had a really good, good guest and Clay's a much better podcaster than I am. Obviously he, somebody <laughs> else noticed that too. He's got credentials and bona fide now. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so, anyways, we had this spot, and then and then a lot's changed with 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 you, Clay, and so so this kind of got lost in the the mix, yeah. and and you're not, you know, obviously, if you listen to the the Bear Grease podcast, it's a whole different format. Like, yeah, like what made you? Is that your concept? I mean, that bear that that format. Hey, can I can I go back just to clarify? See, this is why you're a good podcaster. I think we could just like clarify a little bit of what you said. Yeah, I came up to visit you guys. Y'all invited me and Colby up to Washington, and at the time, we were Bear Hunting Magazine, which I mean, I still is a business that I run and own. Me and Colby, yeah. and and we came up and we were going to do we did a DU podcast and then we did a Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, but then we went to meet your buddy who will John say his Belosier. name later. John Blozier, yeah. Yeah. And and we were going to do a podcast, and it was going to be a joint podcast, but because of John's uh, professional connection with John and his work, which you guys can explain, yeah. we, we like basically had this conversation and didn't know if we were going to be able to to put it out because of his work. Yeah. Like he was, you know. And then now his work situation has changed, so we held on to this podcast for, you know, nine or ten months and it's just been sitting in the hopper, and both of us were super excited about it. Like I was very excited about people meeting John Blozier. Yeah. And then, but we couldn't release it because of his work, and now he can. And so, and then that's why we felt changed. like we kind of need to explain, like yeah. why I'm kind of hosting the DU podcast, but it was from 2020. Yeah, because in our car ride over there, Clay, I was like, you can, you can. You can take this lead. I just I want the rights to be able to put this on our podcast because I I just had a really good feeling that it was going to be good. So I was like, Clay, you can you can run the show. You know, this can be a bear hunting magazine podcast. And so you kind of when you listen to this podcast, I mean, that's why you're going to hear Clay owning the deal. Because I was like, I don't really care about. I mean, I don't I don't care about owning it. You know, I was just like, hey, I want I want somebody to get this podcast. I just want to bring it to our customers and. uh and so yeah. you were like, yeah, sure, And, no and I problem. regret that we weren't able to put it on Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, which might be a good segue to your question. Like, so the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast no longer 
exists. Uh, <laughs> it's still changed. it still exists on the internet. I mean, like we made 110 Once episodes on of the Bear internet, Hunting Magazine. It podcast. never, never leaves the internet, Clay. Never yeah, yeah. So I mean, like people can go back and listen to that, but we are no longer making Bear Hunting Magazine podcasts. And uh, and yeah, and and that happened because I I now have a new podcast through Meat Eater called Bear Grease, and so we we had to kind of put Bear Hunting Magazine to bed, and then you know build this new podcast, which is what we're doing. Yeah. So, so explain Bear Grease because it's different, and you were I don't know, I haven't looked in recently, but like you're like number one in the charts, or or you're right there with. With your, I'm assuming your boss, Steve Ranella, yeah. Meat Eater Podcast. Yeah. You, are you guys having like a little internal like, you know, ha ha? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no not, that's what I Jason mean, would be doing to me. He'd be like, "Hey, your yeah. podcast sucks." <laughs> hey, when you got five out of the top ten, <laughs> like, no, it's it's we're all on the same team, man. I mean, like, and those the, the charts aren't as straightforward as they might seem yeah. because, like. It's hard to describe. They, they use an analytics. It's not just downloads. It's this. It's this algorithm of the amount of comments that mm. people make, iTunes reviews. I don't know the mix of algorithm, but it is not just downloads. Yeah. So you could have somebody that was number one, and number two is actually getting more downloads. Right. So it goes back and forth. It's a lot about release date. So like if. If my podcast comes out on a certain day, like, you know, it might rank high that day, but then four days later, it's ranking lower, you know? Okay, so, so let's, let's explain ranking, down. Clay. To, like, I've watched them. You're, you're ranking higher and lower as, like, number one or number two position. You might go down <laughs> yeah. to number four in the wilderness category, but but you're kicking ass, Clay. I mean, I'll just be honest. Yeah, I gonna, appreciate it, man. Uh, it's been fun to life. listen to. Yeah. It's been really cool because it's different. Like it did totally shift the feel of it. And with you doing the renders as well, you know, I really enjoy listening to it because it's like here's this documentary style, you know, could easily be a TV show. Cause in my head, I'm like making that TV show up as I'm listening. Yeah. And then you got the render where it's like just the down home round table. So it's like two podcasts in one. I, I really dig it, man. Man, it it that was never the original design. So to, to to clarify what Jason just said, so we have a the Bear Grease podcast is a documentary style podcast that we wanted to be an efficient listen. So it's usually under an hour, but but the the efficient adjective really describes the nature of the the commentary. Like mm-hmm. man, I we are meticulous about every second of that thing being, you know, given information and like we're, we really manage it. And, and so these are, you know, highly produced. And by that, I mean like there's music in the background, there's multiple guests on one episode, not, not at the same time, but I'll usually have between three and even five guests on a single episode at different times, some in the field audio um, some kind of informal conversations that I might capture like in the field with someone, but also some very formal conversations. Yeah. And basically we're just putting it together to tell a story. So really it's a storytelling podcast. And man, 
How much I does think, your head hurt trying to put that story together? You know, like, it, it hurts a little bit, but, buddy, it's so awesome because I put that story together just the way that I think. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, when you hear a Bear Grease podcast, that is the rational sequence of kind of my default thought on the way a story needs to be told. So it's not that calculated. I mean, really? Because I can tell like, you, like, we've done our, that good. We've done, like, our, our April Fool's videos, you know what I mean? Like, that's one I can think about. This, like, man, I got to come up with a story for like a simple April, and that's a, a three minute video. And my head is hurting that I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> we need this little piece here to, you know what I mean? So, I mean, yeah, and you're doing an hour podcast, and I'm like, my mind's just blown. Like, you have a, t- if, if you're doing it that naturally, you have a, you have a, a serious talent. I mean, it, it, well, it is see, not that's, underestimated. That's, that's what. <laughs> And this is all being discovered, man. Like, uh, so we started building this podcast last year, and mm-hmm. it didn't come out till April. And the first couple of recordings I did, and like the mock Bear Grease, if you could go back and listen to the first mock Bear Grease podcast, you would be like massively disappointed, just like <laughs> everyone who listened to it was. <laughs> it wouldn't have been number one. <laughs> no, oh, I mean, really, like people were like, uh, I think there's some good stuff here, Clay, but uh, <laughs> it's really not good. <laughs> and, and so, but there was this idea to, to tell a broader story and to have a documentary-style podcast. Because there are other podcasts that do what we're doing, but not in the hunting space. Yeah. Because it takes mm-hmm. so much energy and effort, and it just... It, so we started formulating this idea and executed it, and it didn't work that great. The third, So I made like five podcasts before we ever released the Bear Grease podcast. The, buddy, the third podcast that I made was The Myth of the Southern Mountain Lion, yeah. which ended up being the first podcast we did when i made that podcast it was almost like a wild hair i was like man i'm gonna interview my dad i'm gonna interview brent reeves about seeing the mountain lines he saw which i'm certain is a lie uh i'm joking (laughs) yeah um i'm i'm gonna interview a psychologist which was like out of the box you know i didn't even know i could get a psychologist to come on the show you know, a psychologist. You're just about, trying to save your job at this point. You're yeah, like, oh. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we, we and, and so I explained to this psychologist what I was doing, and he was like, "Well, okay, I guess I'll do it." And, you know, we talk about cognitive bias and naive realism, mm-hmm. and how you know why people see things that don't exist, and why if your dad told you there were mountain lions in Arkansas, you got about a ninety percent higher probability of quote seeing one. And I mean, we just had this fun exploration. Man, when I stitched that all together, so the way the production side of it works, me and Phil Taylor at Meat Eater pretty much are the ones that have hands-on, you know, forming it up. And so I I built the sequence and gathered all the content, and Phil put it together with music and everything. And man, when I listened to that mock episode, which would have been sometime in like February probably, I literally fist-pumped in my truck while I was driving down the road. I was like, Yes, that is what I'm trying to do. It was a yeah. it was a shock That's to me awesome. that it all came together. And then I started building more and more like that. And now it's like it's like a system. So it's actually man and buddy, I'm people that do things that seem like spectacular 
are you you build a sequence and break it down into small components and it's actually really normal yeah you know because like you could say clay do a bear grease podcast about this aluminum can that's sitting on your desk and i would go okay i can do that so you yeah. you it's once a, you a once sequence. you do something you get good at it and you you learn i mean that's that's really it's not always known. I mean, and, and that's kind of what we talk about in like our training episodes is when you watch a houndsman train a pup, you know what I mean? In the beginning, I mean, it's hard. It's like, what in the hell are you doing here and there? But to do it the second time, the third time, the fourth time, it's just like, well, you just grab that pup and you just, you just know what you're doing or, or your mule, you know, in your case, you, you train a mule, you know, you got dogs, but yeah. And and so that's what we've been trying to talk about with our training podcast is kind of like breaking down that system Having to the system in place you know, so you can replicate it. Think yeah. about it a little bit, you know, I, I, yeah. So, but yeah, no, that makes sense. That, that totally makes sense. And once you, but I'm going to, I'm still going to not let you totally skate that much. You have a talent there that, that, I mean, I seen a couple of years ago when you were, you know, I first was, I mean, I could tell you the, the section of road I was on, I didn't have service, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta email Clay. I don't know if I emailed or text you or whatever. Um, I was, li- I listened to your podcast on the way home from hunting. I was up hunting. I was like, how many listeners one of these podcasts? Because I, I, I wasn't a podcast listener. And but he uh, was so anti podcast in the beginning. <laughs> like <it> was <laughs> the when we lo- I don't mean to like cut you off, buddy. But when we started the W podcast, the plan for that podcast, as far as the outline, the you know, my proposed outreach for the, the listener base, you know, the demographics, it got tucked away for what? Three years, buddy. Yeah. When I first talked to you about it, cause he's like, eh, podcast. What's a podcast? What? <laughs> like <laughs> literally it was hilarious. So this is like, you were kind of like that. Too. I learned that play? Buddy Woodbury turns on and turns off really quick. Very quickly. <laughs> it's very quick. <laughs> yeah. 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 That makes usually a good businessman. Oh. It's like because when he learns something's going to work, he's all in. If he learns it's not going to work, he's all out. Yeah. Well, it's like you, like you said, you have a you got a system in how you do these things. It's I don't yeah. know, man. It's pretty. It's Anyways, been awesome I was coming watch. back from I was up hunting in in Oregon, and I remember I was like, I couldn't wait to get in service because I was like, I wanted to send you a message, being like that podcast. I don't remember. I don't even remember which one it was, but it was a, a bear hunting magazine podcast, and I'm like. I, I'd probably go back and look, but I was like, you found your wheels. Like I, cause I, we had, you know, uh, I, I had watched you do the bear hunting magazine and, and, uh, hopefully that's going good for you. It just never, I've never been impressed with the print magazine, you know, because I've, I just haven't been there. But when I heard you do your podcast, I was like, Clay has found his calling, and and I still to this day think that's Folks, what. Let me you clarify know. what Buddy means. <laughs> yes, we, he, <laughs> he, he basically just said the Barony magazine that Barony magazine sucks, no, which is not means, true, and it's I not didn't what say he that, meant. Clay. He, he, said, he said in my small he, what he said was print world. in general, the print world. Yes. yes. Okay. So Bear hunting magazine is actually extraordinary. Clay is going to save the print hunting magazine world with Bear hunting magazine, <laughs> <laughs> and he's still on that mission. He hasn't given I knew up what on he that. meant. I knew what he meant. <laughs> You've been around long enough. You get it. People who don't know Buddy, he throws something out there like that, and it's like, oh. all right, Jason's going on damage control real quick. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so moving to the next thing I want to talk about. Like, we, I, 
I'm not done patting your back yet. So you have this platform. You were just on on Joe Rogan, which I listened to that one too. And I, there's, I I've listened to two Joe Rogan podcasts. One was Clay Newcomb, and the other one was uh, uh, David, Copperfield, David Copperfield. I think I was up in the woods, and but that was before he got he left. I don't know. There's some drama with him leaving Apple or whatever. I don't know. Anyways, excellent job, Clay, and I really want to thank you, especially on the topic of of trophy hunting. Because the, as you know, the antis use that word. Like I've sat in so many meetings at, at commission meetings, wildlife commission meetings in Oregon and in uh, in Washington, and 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 you just hear trophy hunting, trophy hunting, trophy hunting. Every yeah. anti hunter comes up to the commission, and that's what that's the word they use because somewhere they've done some study that's like trophy hunting has this negative op- uh, personal opinion. And they're playing the narrative, and yeah. and you handled that so nicely that I, I was like, that was my fist pump in the in the truck. Yeah. Clay was like, we have well somebody who man, can talk. It's like so many things, like so many things. Like ultimately, when we when we think about the national, and I don't, I struggle to use the word fight because I, I I think the answer is not to fight but it's to for people the baseline education and knowledge of the average american hunter to come up to such a level that we don't have to fight we just have to communicate who we are and we'll let rational thinking people go you know what those guys are pretty smart and uh other guys Mm -hmm. narrative is kind of dumb you know it it like I keep going back to that. We are really the good guys. We're not the bad guys that are trying to come up with a branding strategy so that we could continue our evil across the land and pass right. it on to our children. We're actually the good guys that love wildlife, that love wildlife habitat, that want it to be sustainable. We want more moose, elk, bear, deer, cougars, bear on the landscape. We're the guys that have the magic key for how to make that work sustainably in a country with 330 million people. So yeah. it's not an issue of like us fighting these people that have a very simplistic and ignorant in the most real sense of the word mm-hmm. yeah. position. We ha- so the fight is not against them necessarily. The fight, the challenge is, is educating ourselves because you go back to the foundations of all the stuff that we do and, and there's some sustainable truth inside of it. And if we go back to the foundations of what we do and we don't find that, then we realize that maybe we're doing something wrong. Right. And so we're, we're, not, we're also not saying that the hunting world is completely void of fallacy that one, you know, 25 years from now we'll go, dang. We probably shouldn't have been doing that. Sure. Like history has proven that that will continue forever. Like we're we're on this trajectory of refining who we are, and as hunters, I mean, the 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 American identity was founded upon American hunters. It's yeah. deep inside of this culture, like nowhere else in the world. And for us to lose that would be a national tragedy, it would be a cultural tragedy, it would be a tragedy for wildlife. And all that we're trying to say, and, and, and we, we also have to have empathy for the other side. 
Like it is very, it's very easy for me to understand how someone who did not know who we were, why we do what we do, didn't have that generational, generational fuel behind them saying that hunting is good. It's like very easy to understand why someone would be like trophy hunting. You mean people kill animals because they're big? Yeah, sure. because they want to say that that is like a trophy. Very easy to understand why they would not like that. So we yeah. we got to we got to be balanced the way we look at this. We have to have empathy for that person. We have to realize that we probably have a lot more in common with that person than the person who knows nothing about wildlife and doesn't care. That's the other thing. Yeah. Cuz I've been like, like going back, I've been in meetings, you know, at, at commission meetings with somebody who was just a cat lover, like, you know, bobcat cougar. And, oh my god. And I mean, I was sitting there and we just they were open enough to have a conversation and I'm like ma'am you would love what i do like I, i'm not out there shooting all the cats you may not like harvesting a cat you know so there may be some there may be some some points that we separate you know what i mean like there, at the point yeah. where i harvest an animal for you know i don't do a, i don't harvest a lot of them but i'm like my everyday job my my goal in the morning is not to go out and, and kill a cat I, it's to go out and work with my dogs if you like dogs you'd be yeah. And I see a bobcat, and I'm like, that's the best part of my whole day. And I, I call my dogs off, and I leave. And I'm like, you would love that part of it if you would get over this persona that you have of what we are. And and just sitting down talking a couple times, Not, it doesn't change everybody. There are some people who are 100%, they are political and political-minded, and, and they are going to, you know, they have an objective and those people, like you said, you're not going to change those people. But the people who are on the fence and just don't know, they're you know ignorant. You know, those are the people that you can you can open their eyes up, and then it opens my eyes up to them to be like, hey, maybe I should be a little bit, you know, I, I should open up a little bit more and and reach out because just doing what I do and not doing anything sometimes is not the answer either. You know, mm-hmm. you gotta. So so by you, and and I go back to you know, whatever the, the the trophy hunting term came up on Joe Rogan. If you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to that podcast. And the way you handled that was, I mean, it was just, like I said, I, was, I, was, I had a fist pump in the thing. Like yeah. there's people who are like, Oh my gosh, you know, we, you know, don't, don't be ashamed of whatever. And it's like, that's not what it, this is. I'm not ashamed of the word trophy hunting. I just know that what it's being used as politically they're doing a better job of trying to paint what that term is. And you just methodically handled it and kind of explained, man, you know what I mean? Like it's not, you know, you weren't combative, you weren't, but you were just really methodical. And I was like, damn, like to have you in that position, I think all of us hunters, houndsmen and woodsmen are really, truly blessed. I mean, you're just in a position that, that I want to say thank you. So, well, man, it was, uh, yeah, is it, being on Rogan was pretty interesting. And, uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting space to stand in. And I, and I think, I think we did talk to a lot of, a lot of non hunters. Yeah. Really did. I mean, he, oh, yeah. his, his reach is just so broad, you know. And, yeah. and he's, he's good about, you know, he has a lot of hunters on the show. So, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, good. and and I I I liked him. You know what I mean? Like I said, he yeah, he's a really interesting. I was I was really worried whenever I <laughs> I was like, how many f bombs are gonna go to Clay, and how's how is Clay gonna handle the communication <laughs> oh. style between you and him? I was like, I was oh, so I looking forward to that. <laughs> I saw that, and I'm like, I literally, I was. You you got my kids in trouble when that thing launched, Clay, because oh, they kept interrupting, and all I wanted to do was sit there and listen to it all the <laughs> way through. And it was like twenty here, fifteen here, you know, a couple minutes in the beginning. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, dang, yeah. this is good because, hey, I love Joe Rogan. I, I love listening to him. I like his style, and knowing you on a personal level, I'm like, this is gonna be like I don't even know what to expect other than awesomeness <laughs> because, you know, there's. Joe, which is just this huge personality and, you know, super intelligent. And you're such a wordsmith and a very intelligent guy. And I'm like, this is the magic in the making. And you guys did not <laughs> I'm disappoint. You, I'm glad you thought that, man. Like no, I told was... Buddy, you speak the bro dialect, both of you. And the, the bro <laughs> dialect is this very special communication from all walks of life that come together. And yeah, it was Now, bomb, see, man. you're informing me of something, the bro dialect. I yes. like it. Oh, I yeah. didn't it's know like about that stashed. either, Clay. <laughs> right? What, what was the word you used before? It was you got stashed at the store. Oh, oh like yeah, at the store when someone saw I had a mustache and yeah, 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 yeah. me and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, yeah, bro dialect, man. It's like I don't know. It's hard to explain, but when you're around <laughs> people like that, just that that common um, the coolness, the coolness factor, the settled, I guess. Okay, this is informing me. This is good. This is good. You got the bro dialect down. Okay. So, Clay, uh, you're doing awesome, man. I want to say thank you. For for you being in the position, I don't know that there's any better person that that can – you're getting in some circles that are bigger circles of of people, and I'm just glad that it's you. You know what I mean? Because it's easy – to not say anything, you know what I mean, and those, and, and you, you know, what I mean, it's it, it's uncomfortable to to challenge some people. Who, I mean, Joe Rogan or who, whoever. It's like, man, they have a platform and they have a following that's massive, and and uh, and you being a strong enough person, internal, like that. That I'm glad it's you. That, yeah, that 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 says a lot. So if there's anything we can do to help you, like. We're still behind you. You're, you're you're leading the charge. You're guarding that gate, and you're you're doing it on a on a level that I didn't foresee um, a year and a half, two years ago. I just I didn't foresee it. I mean, I was like, I knew you were going places. I could tell that you had found a groove um, with this thing they call a podcast, and and uh, <laughs> it's taking you good places. But I'm just glad it's um, number one, a houndsman, a woodsman, and and somebody who's really has a really strong character, which, which you do. Well, appreciate so. it, man. Appreciate um, it. So you let's, know, let's oh, go ahead. Oh, anything else you want to touch well, on the, your whole story? I was going to say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to d- refine and we're all like defining what it means to guard the gate. And because I'm talking to houndsmen, like that's like the core audience for that, where that terminology arose, you know, guard the gate, meaning the weakest link in the chain is, is where, our adversaries are going to attack us. So that, you know, the mm-hmm. idea that the, of the whole of the hunting community, where they're going to attack us is in hound hunting, predator hunting, all these different things. So we have to guard that. We don't, we don't forsake that. Like some people might say, well, let's just get rid of it. But we say, no, nah, let's, let's 
enforce that. Let's become educated. And so that's what guard the gate means. Buddy, what I'm now even expanding the definition of guarding the gate is like the Bear Grease podcast and what we're trying to do is reach a hunt, a, an audience broader than hunting and expose them to hunting in a way that makes them see the human connection to it. Because yeah. killing an animal will always be something that someone who's never done it and has no connection to it will be a big jump for them to humanize a person that would do that without villainizing them. Man, yeah. what 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 I'm finding as as we tell the stories that I just want to tell. I mean, like meteors so awesome, they've just been like, go clay, like you know, tell the stories yeah. you want to tell. I mean, like, uh, and what I'm seeing like. On these apple, for instance, we did a series on Appalachian Mountain culture, and I, I used a hound hunter as my main guy that we tell the story of Appalachia through his life. And it's not about hound hunting; it's really not. Right. I mean, like probably right. like fifteen percent of that podcast, if you actually dissected the minutes of content, is about hounds. Like, so he talks about his hounds, but he talks about his family, he talks about his farming, he talks about his music, he talks about. One of the old men talks about his dad dying and him growing a patch of tobacco to buy his family farm so that he and his mother could live there when he was 13 years old. You hear that story, and then you see that these guys are bear hunting with hounds, and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Maybe, maybe these guys aren't monsters. Right. And then you hear about his family history. And you, you hear about, you, you see the dedication that these guys have had and I think that's guarding the gate. Like I really do. Like it's Absolutely. it's not it's not a punch. Like and, and there's been times when I have punched, you know, like direct confrontation of the things that challenge us, which we've got to do. Like you you, you yeah, gotta totally. have all these different moves, you know, like because there is political action in this country that demands political action from us. But there's also which I think is probably more important in the long run is because we can get in a fist fight with anti-hunting groups. And I mean, kind of whoever, it's hard to say who's going to win. Yeah. What we need to do is change the, the culture of North America and the non-hunter. And we all know that, you know, it's the 80% of the people that don't care or aren't informed that are going to be making these decisions. Yeah. 10% are for hunting, 10% are against hunting. 80% 80% are undecided, don't care, don't have the information. If we can reach those people with a human interest story and them go, yeah, I mean, this, these guys are, you know, James Lawrence, I did a podcast on this guy named James Lawrence who's a deer hunter. It's like, wow, there's a human interest story inside of that podcast about James, and it, but, it, but it's tied into his hunting. So I think, yeah. I think there, there's something there. And that's kind oh, of what Steve Rinella has done too. You know, Steve Steve has gone outside of the hunting space big time, and yeah. through through the content and the way he does things, that's been so interesting. So this is just kind of like a dip, maybe a different version of that. You know, no, because I like I said, I've sat in 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 roundtable meetings or whatever where they bring all different. You know, you, you got the anti hunters, you got you know hunters or whatever, and and connecting. And what I've learned is connecting on the human level 
is really, really powerful. It's easy. I mean, I remember I was sitting in a, um, we were running a bill uh, here in Washington, and and I remember going to a, uh, a, a senator or legislator's office, and I mean, it was in, in downtown Seattle, like I mean, downtown Seattle, and and they were. He, he wouldn't meet with me, but his aide sat there, and I said I was explaining the bill or whatever, and 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 they were looking at it, going like, "Well, who would be opposed to this?" And I go, "Well, normally, you know, anti hunters and stuff, and you know, and and whatever." And, and he goes, "Well, why are why are you guys all getting along? You know, because we we had had to work on this bill collectively." And I said, "Well, because normally we don't talk to each other. We throw rocks and sticks at each other, and we call each other names. That's what we do, and that doesn't work. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you, you know, talk about the fight. I was like, we just fight each other." over everything so nobody wants to give anything and i said in this situation we sat down at the room i listened and they listened and they had you know concerns about uh dog abuse you know i mean that was one of the things like well we, we you know this dog abuse thing and i said and in the meeting i was like nope i like kicking puppies and and the whole room was like looked at me like and i'm like i'm joking guy like we love puppies we love dogs this is why we do this in that human moment there was just a powerful situation that was like, do we do this because we love dogs? And so if you think that we just want to torture dogs or we're going to be mean to our dogs, I'm like, you are so far removed from what yeah. the people that I know and I hunt with and I hang out with. And so that was, that was kind of an aha moment for me. It was like, they had this expectation that was not human. You know what I mean? And once we brought the human element into it, we didn't agree on everything. Like I said, when it got to the harvest part, they were pretty hard lined on they don't want an animal to die and i can respect that you know what i mean there's a reason i'm okay with it and there's a reason some people are, my wife she sometimes she can and sometimes she's like yeah i don't really want to shoot that i've, I've had deer in, in her sights she's like no nope, we're gonna let that one go and she just wasn't feeling it and that's fine you know what i mean that's her, that's her her way me i'd have been like meat on the ground <laughs> that one's going down but anyways so you have a platform and, and i'm just glad that you are a smart enough and insightful enough guy to use your platform and try to educate people outside our circle because we can talk to ourselves all day long and we ain't getting yeah. nowhere. You know what I mean? Like we'll just argue with amongst ourselves. So yeah. Well, um, I think the whole meat eater crew, I mean, that's the thing about it is it's reached out beyond the hunting population. It's brought hunting into how many households in America? I mean, that if anything, it's just provoked some thought, you know, because, yeah. you know, I'll be honest, I don't watch a lot of the meat eater TV show, but when I do, it's like, man, you know, like it does provoke some thought there. And the same with bear grease. And that's why I love your render episodes is going back because it gives me some time to think about it and process the episode and then come back. And I think you guys are just all super articulate and, it's all done with purpose. Yeah. And I think you guys are doing awesome. good stuff. That machine is just unreal how it's working for the hunting community. Appreciate so, it, man. How, how one last question. We got to move on. We got to, we need to, we had you on here to make sure we introduce their, our new podcast and explain it. And we've already got sidetracked. I knew this was going to happen, but um, <laughs> how's your family dealing with all the, the change? Cause I mean, you know, I know you're a pretty strong uh, you know, you have a good core about you, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily worried about you. You know, but uh, you know that's a big change for your family. I mean, there's you've been doing yeah. a lot of things and a lot, you've been all over the place, and and there's a, a whole different shift in your work. You know, but, 
How, you know, how's everything it's really going? not that much different than what I've been doing the last eight years. And like, it's kind of interesting because I, for, for eight years since 2013, when I, when I started Bear Hunting Magazine, acquired Bear Hunting Magazine, like I dedicated myself to bear hunting. Like I, I traveled extensively like that, that if I could have dissected my brain, that would have been like on the top, excluding family and you know yeah. obviously the, the obvious things i'm not saying i put it above my family um but like from a career standpoint my focus was not even the magazine my focus was if we're going to produce this magazine i have to be a bear hunter first and yeah. so i i sought mm-hmm. to experience everything possible inside the bear world from hounds to spot and stock out west to hunting the deciduous forest in the east to canada to Southwest, you know, and, and try to do as much as I could. Um, so I traveled a lot doing that. And yeah. so this is a little just different. And now my focus, like I'm still bear hunting and still traveling a lot hunting, but Good. now it's almost like my focus now is this content, which to me is not content. It's not like work. Like it's not like, oh, I got to do this. This is a job. Somebody's making me do this. It's like, man, I got a list of stories that I want to tell and it just right. feels like the priority. And and so Sweet. it doesn't mean I quit hunting. But for the family, it, it's it's not that much different, you know. I feel like and yeah. I my wife, man, she is like she is a very strong woman that is unimpressed with Clay Newcomb. Um, <laughs> I I was listening to Bear Bear Reese Render. <laughs> And I was like, "Oh, Missy, I like Missy." Yeah, <laughs> she's yeah. like, oh, yeah. Missy's "She's great. like Laura. Like, I will knock you down by your 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 knees yeah. if you get too big." That's right. So so like, yeah. And these are conversations we definitely have as a couple for mm-hmm. real. Like, yeah, just like Clay, your 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 kids can't see you as this dude for meat eater. And I mean, it's not her telling me that; it's me knowing that yeah. too. It's like sure. uh, it can't change me. It can't, and, nope. and that's that's the problem. And you see that, and it's something I'm highly aware of. Is that like, it happens in any place. I mean, you, it doesn't have to be like a public figure, but as people keep going forward in life, sometimes they change. And yeah. and and I mean, yeah. I think with the right character, that's not a problem because you recognize that all this is pretty fleeting. I mean, it's like it's like. I don't know. I, I just have to keep yeah. a, the core mission of who I am and what I'm doing. I don't know. It's, well, I, 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 like I said, that's why I asked was because I knew. Yeah. Um, I know you're. I mean, you're really in. You have a good high integrity and 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 you're insightful and and I've seen that with like with Laura. She will knock my ass down to the ground, be like <laughs> make fun of me or whatever it is. I'm like, okay, I get the uh-huh. point. You know what I mean? I'm, like yeah, we, yeah. we're just buddy Tap and Laura. Out. You know what I mean? And and so we'll have somebody come, and I'm like, dude, we're just regular people. We're just hound guys. We just have this job that requires us to do things. And sometimes in in our society, we forget that. It's like we see these people on a you know, that have this following, they do what they do really good, which is, you know, you're doing what you do really good. Um, but man, when the, when the lights go out and you, and you close that door and, and the day you're still Clay Newcomb and, and, uh, you know, you, you can't get lost sometimes. So 
cool. When your yeah. internal compass is set, man, and solid, and you're rooted, and you have a foundation like I know you and your family have, Clay, you know, it's like when you went to Meat Eater, I thought, man, this is going to be an awesome ride to watch because like buddy says, you know, we spent the time with you. We've chatted over the years. We've got to watch you grow bear hunting magazine. And it's like, there was no doubt who clay Newcomb was. So it's pretty awesome to see clay Newcomb making these changes, but still staying super rooted. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I appreciate it guys. You are. We're, uh, you going to try and hunt Canada. What's your, yeah, for sure. Canada. You're getting a shot. Oh yeah, oh, <laughs> me too. Yeah. I haven't no got it yet, but I'm like, put 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 it in there. Put, oh, put the microchip or whatever man. you want to call it. Oh. No, I, I I yeah, I'm I'm going. To, I mean, assuming the border stays open, yeah, I'm yeah. going to Canada in in August. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right you're going right away. Right on. You're like, yeah, I haven't gotten that shot. I, me actually, me and Laura were talking. She was like, you're not. You're gonna get the shot. You're gonna make me feel like I said, baby. If you don't want that shot, don't get that shot. I don't care. The only reason I'm yeah. getting it is because Go I've got to look those Mounties in the face, and I don't want to have a fake document whenever you know they're looking at my eyes twitch. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. So like, I got to get the real thing, man. I, I, I just can't yeah. lie at, at that border. You've crossed that border. You know those guys yep. don't mess around. Yeah, um, that's right. So we're doing a, a giveaway. I don't know if you heard it or not, but it, anyways, I got to give a plug for our W. If, if you buy a shirt a hat or any apparel item from now until I think September. September, um, yeah. Somebody, one one of those people we're going to select to go on a, a lynx hunt or a bear hunt, and uh, they can join the lynx hunt with me in hopefully November. That's when I normally go, but again, you got to cool. You got to get the, you got to get poked. have to dogs. buy some shirts so my name's in the hat. Yeah. And, uh, and then if, if I if win, they're going to think it's rigged. That's I know. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna, if if you win, Clay, day. I'm going to have to do a second one. I'm going to buy like, right. like 300 <laughs> shirts from y'all just so that <laughs> my name's in the hat that many times. That's what you Brent bought one. Now. And I'm like, new sponsor wins a hunt from us. You know, there's some things that could get dicey here. But <laughs> <laughs> your, uh, your, your, your bear grease hat, what kind of hat is that? Was that uh, a... You know, oh, this is proprietary I, information. No, this <laughs> is well, I'm just wondering if I can buy a. I'm, I'm going to buy a hat, and I've been. I if you have to buy me, Clay, one and look at the label. I know that's <laughs> buy a couple of them. Buy two. I'm getting friends, Clay. It's like, hey, do you know where I can get a, a bear grease? Uh, yeah, hat? you can get them like, on the mediator.com. We don't sell them on. We don't sell them on Bear Hunting Magazine anymore. You had to get that, that name up. Yeah, I, yeah, I it's, noticed it's that. TheMeatEater.com, man. Yeah, you can buy them. Yeah. So I've been, I've, I haven't done it yet. Um, I have only worn W since I basically since I've quit Intel. Like almost every mm, day, yeah. I've almost worn a W shirt, hat of some sort. And, and you're, you're not there yet, Clay. But I am so close to buying a bear grease hat because oh. you've made it so so cool. I can't and wait to see a picture of Buddy in a bear I, grease. I will hat. post it for It'll you. Make but my day. I, I am I am right there. That and I'm just I'm right. I haven't taken the W, w hat off yet, Clay. But I'm actually wearing a, a Cold Strike T-shirt, so I'm I'm actually starting to open up. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, you know what? I, I gotta help some other people and 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 so, anyways, I'm I'm close to getting that bear grease hat on MeatEater.com is where I got to get it. <laughs> yeah yeah all right 
this podcast, um, the whole reason we suckered Clay into joining us was because we, um, we did a podcast with, with John Belozier. And uh, John was was a, a government hunter for, I can't even remember how long, but a long time. He is a hell of a, a houndsman. He runs on mules, which, you know, whenever Clay was out here, I was, you know, we were, we were sitting up on top of a mountain. I only, I, I, I guess. Don't disclose it. Well, I don't mm. ever go up there. Clay probably doesn't ever want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, send every bear hunter in Washington there. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty good hike in there. And, and uh, we we're sitting up there, and, and Clay had found bears. I mean, he could have killed a bear if he wanted. But it was in this, I mean, this drainage that it was. It would have been, like Clay was looking at it. And you can see, I, I, can, I had an appreciation for Clay Newcomb sitting on that mountain as his mind was just spinning like how am i going to kill this bear and it wasn't so much how am i going to kill the bear it was how am i going to get the bear out because it was just shale rock rough up straight down to the bottom he showed me where he where he seen it and and he's like man I'm, i have no doubts i could kill it i just don't know that i could get it out in the time in the heat and all the, the other things that were happening and i i'm not kidding jason i me and bradley hiked in to, to meet with clay mm-hmm. and uh I had my my gun with me because I was like, I've never, I don't have a desire to kill a bear. I've killed one. And I was like, I'll bring my rifle. If I see one, I'll show, I got the bear hunter with me. If I could shoot a bear on the way in, whatever. (laughs) I started throwing my ammo off. I was like, I was losing ammo left and right. I got the clay. I'm like, I got no ammo left. I don't know. I dropped it all because it was just steep, deep country. And uh, it's rough up there. Yeah. Anyways, so we were up there and uh, I remember Clay was like, this. He's like, this just isn't going to happen for um, killing a bear. You know, he, he was just doing the math, and he's like, I think he was like, this trip. And, and I said, well, I got a guy that would be a good podcast because I knew he liked mules. And so we were up there, and he's like, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's, you, know, you could tell the business side of Clay Newcomb was he came all this way. He either wanted to come home with the bear, which I think was his number one priority, and when that wasn't going to happen, he's like, well, at least I can get a podcast out get of it. Get some good content. And, uh, and so I told him, I said, well, let's go. I, I made a phone call. It was like 6.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. I was like, well, this guy will be up. He'll be driving somewhere. And so I called John, and I said, hey, would you sit down? I got a guy I want you to meet. And uh, so we, anyways, we, we packed ourselves off that mountain. I think Bradley, I, first time I ever had huckleberries. I think Bradley was happy. He was, that was a cool trip for me to go in there yeah. and, and, and take Bradley on an overnight trip, um, backpacking and all that stuff. But we just kind of changed our plans, you know what I mean? And at that point, um, we we went out there and uh, you did this interview with, with John Belozier, good friend of mine. I uh, I actually, we ordered dog food, and so I got to go uh, meet with him again here in the next week or two. And I hopefully I'll get to go hop on a mule again and, and go take a ride out in the following the lions. But I knew... Um, in this car ride, I was like, Clay, I said, I, I'm going to, I don't care about who runs the show. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll let you run the show. This can be a bear hunting magazine podcast. I just want the rights to be able to put this on our podcast. Cause I, this guy has some good stories and he's just a real decent human being. I got Clay Newcomb. I, I could tell just the time I spent with you, you were a real decent human being. And John Belozier is just one of those guys that he's a real decent human being. And at the time, um, 
he was working he had a boss and so he he was uh he had to make sure he got approval you know there as was he some was red tape yeah some red tape yeah. and so um anyways long story short he no longer has a boss uh with 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 the government and so um we we're going to be able to release this and now it's a lot's changed since then this isn't clay nuka meat eater you know going behind your boss's back and recording it you know this was this was <laughs> this done. Isn't the stepchild <laughs> yeah this is the, like i said it's the nine month baby this is what clay newcomb did before he married meat eater <laughs> man i tell you what i i was excited when you said that we were going to get to release this because i mean of all the interviews that i did with barony magazine really i think this was one of my favorite ones i mean I don't. I, I can't. I'm not going to say it was. It was the favorite. I'm just saying. It, really, I, if I listed out probably ten of those episodes that just were really memorable, John Melosier would for sure be in that. Because really? what I've said, yeah, I'm not kidding. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about dry ground line hunting. I mean, you know, I, I know something about hounds, and but. Y- you can perceive when someone is a master at what they do. Oh, yeah. Anything. I mean, you can sit down. You may not know anything about golf, but if you're perceptive about life and understand how people dedicate their lives to something, you could sit down with somebody and be like, that guy is a master. Yeah, and, sure. uh, and and I had, I had, I mean, I, I do know something about dry ground line hunting. I, I mean, point being, I'm not a, I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert. I'm not an in the field expert. But man, when we sat down with John, it was just so clear that this guy was uh, next level in terms of his knowledge and his yeah. experience. But he, he'd done it professionally; like he's not a hobby dry ground line hunter. He'd done yeah, it. He's a master. He'd done it like year round for decades, raising dogs yeah. on mules, catching lions in really tough parts of the country. Um, and that is when I get excited is when I can talk to somebody like that. And, uh, so I'm, I'm very excited for people to be able to hear it. And I'm anxious to go back. Cause you know, I mean, I was there, but I haven't heard the podcast since yeah. in nine months. So like, I want to go back and listen to it. And it was pretty long. I mean, I think it was two hours long at least. Yeah. So, it's going to um, be, this will be a long one. And I, three I started listening a little bit and I'm it. like, God damn it. I, this, this, I was in there. Sometimes I cringe when I talk. I'm like, damn it. I, I just need to shut up. I need more like me. I need to be more like Clay Newcomb. Shut my mouth. And sometimes, anyways, it was a really good one to listen to though. Cause I wasn't yeah. there. I felt bad. I couldn't stay through your whole hunt while you were up in Washington, but I had bears to kill too. And, uh, yeah. And you did. I did. Yeah. Yep. You guys were recording that podcast and I, I killed a bear that morning, but yeah, I felt pretty. Uh, I felt like I kind of got gar hold. Mm. <laughs> you like, next time. <laughs> you're like the bear magnet because I've seen more bears in that country this year after you left than I've ever seen in some of that ground. I, I mean, I've I had a guy I took up the other day and I was driving home. He's like, "Oh, you see that bear up?" I, I didn't see it, but it was like 20 yards from my truck. I was hauling ass out of there. I've I probably seen I don't know a handful of bears that. In, in the last year since you've in places I've showed you and I'm like I know those bears here maybe it's because I'm looking for them now I don't you're, know I think you're just That's paying attention yeah I bet yeah you you're you're opening my eyes Clay I haven't I don't want to shoot one yet but I'm getting close so they're good to eat I'll, I'll start with the bear grease hat 
And then Very once I get the Bear Grease hat, I'll probably wear that, and then it's going to be like wearing off a little more, and I'll be like, if you had some Bear Grease, you might, uh, you might be able to cause a little hair growth up on top. You wouldn't have to wear the hat all the time. Oh, oh this is... <laughs> <laughs> Cut, cut. Yeah, that's good. We're done. Cut it out. Do some Thanks a lot, Clay. Catch you later. It's over. <laughs> all Remember right, all I said about you, Clay? Forget it. <laughs> we, we're not even running this podcast anymore. I don't I don't like it. I'm hot and cold. I'll send Buddy out. We got to get him convinced to start hunting bears because he'd like it. Like you said, eat it. I'll send you a bear pizza yeah. when Danny makes it. Well, see, the, that maybe that's what it is because my bear that I killed, my very first bear I killed, I did not get the hide off i didn't get it um do you know what i mean i i, I was i was young the meat you know, wasn't was like, that great like it spoiled yeah it spoiled I, and and i i had to go back out to get help to try you know i was still in this mindset of getting things out whole you know getting animals out hold i was afraid to quarter them and and stuff like that and so I was like, well, we can get a quad here and we get this, you know, rigging and rope and I now I'd be like, let's just get the damn hide off, get the meat cooled. You know what I mean? I'd I'd have a, I have just learned a lot more. Um anyway, so it spoiled and that meat was rank. Yeah, you know, I tried to eat it. I tried yeah. to save what I could. I was like, there was like green pieces I'm cutting off here and cutting pieces that weren't green. <laughs> and once a, a an animal goes bone sour, um Yeah, it's which, done. They'll you know, ruin it for you. It's done. And and you know, you you tried to make sausage and you just you could just that that smell comes through so i maybe that's i'm just maybe i just need some i'll good bring bread. you some I, sausage i got some right. awesome italian sausage we made we use it for everything from bring it pizza to, to biscuits and gravy i'll bring you some man black bear meat was the fuel of the american frontier man like for real um all right that's clay why don't you close this out I know you. You. I. I've already got you longer. We, I, I was like, oh yeah, Clay, twenty, thirty minutes. Here we're at fifty-five minutes. Uh, you are just <laughs> a natural at talking. Close us out. Give us the the old put on the old bear hunting magazine podcast. You know, wild places, wild. My name is Clay Newcomb, and uh, close it out for us for John Belosier. Now, so you want me to say keep the wild places wild, just like you used to do on the old bear, just like. Just, just, inter- just like you used to close out the, the like your nine month old baby, like you were nine months ago. Pitch this list. Close it out. People oh, need to hear this. So not close it out. Not like close the podcast. Introduce the podcast. Sure. Introduce John Belosier. You see, this is where you're like methodical, and I'm not. Methodical. But he's like, I'm this isn't like, working like I thought. <laughs> and he said it is. I would it's like not. to introduce my new friend John Belosier. Who we, me and Buddy sat down and had an awesome time talking to him. You're going to enjoy this podcast. We're in Central Oregon. Uh, I've got uh, Buddy Woodbury with me from W. Got Colby the Bear Tech Moorhead over here. And we're, we are at uh, John Belozier's house. Belozier. Belozier. Man, I had, I had it. Um, <laughs> hey, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. You bet. For sure. Um, buddy, how do you know John? Um, well, he was not real technical savvy, and I the the deal was for for me to sell him an Alpha combo system and get him to upgrade from the archaic to twenty days. I had to come over here and hunt with him, and I kind of fell in love. So, uh, <laughs> so that's what happened nice. is I had to show him how to how to work a system. Nice. He's good, he's good with those Garmin's, isn't he? Yeah, I think he builds them. <laughs> yeah, I think he knows them better than the Garmin guys do. 
I'm positive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, were you raised up in Central Oregon? I actually was born and raised in the Willamette Valley west of here, but I've lived here in this part of the world since I was 19. Okay. Man, so we just drove from southwest Washington over to here. Southwest Washington is only a couple hours away. Trees thick. I mean, the in the terrain here is like radically different. I mean, this is like is this high desert? What how would you describe the yes. landscape? Yeah, that's that's what they would consider most of central Oregon is high desert. And then we have some mountain ranges that uh run through here as well but the cascade mountains cause a big rain shadow and so that's we, it we don't uh you know the west side of the mountains maybe gets 30 to 60 per- inches of precipitation a year and over here we get 10 buddy and colby are y'all impressed with me that i knew that there was a rain shadow <laughs> he, i didn't even know <laughs> that, yeah. because it was shadow. so it was so quick i mean it was yeah. like we're on one side of the mountains and then there's these you know just you, you were in a rainforest, and then immediately we're in this like dry, just desert looking country. That's the so, first time I've heard the word rain shadow, and I've heard it twice, twice today. today. Well, <laughs> well, I, Clay on the drive I, over here, and I because just because my question you. to you was what made this terrain like that, and it's the rain shadow. So the so the precipitation in the clouds coming from the Pacific Ocean comes and showers all its rain on the western side of the mountains, gains elevation, and by the time it gets up high enough to cross the Cascades. It's there's no rain left. There's no moisture in the clouds. Is that about right? Yes, certainly a lot less. Yeah, uh, yeah yes, yeah. that's a fact. Yeah, incredible. Well, John, so tell us. Uh, so you you are a lion hunter. Mm-hmm. You, yes, sir. Uh, man, when when Buddy told me, he was like, "I, I met this guy. You you got to meet him. He rides mules." And anytime somebody says mules to me. It's like ding 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 ding. ding, ding, ding. It's like I, I I just love mules. Now I've not had mules my whole life. Just the last five years or so, I've had mules. So I'm really pretty green, but I but I really do love them. But and then how you got a lot stacked in your favor when it comes to, into my book. So you you're a lion hunter. You hunt off mules, and uh, that's pretty incredible. But you're a you work for the government. Yeah, I actually uh, work for a branch of the government called USDA Wildlife Services, and I've been employed by them since May of 1981, wow. so about 39 well, how years. How old were you when you got that job? 17. 17 years old. And so lay out for me the uh, – so you, you are hunting for the government nuisance lions. Yeah, problem lions, whether they be uh, deemed a threat to human health and safety or livestock depredations, uh, is our my main focus of my job. That's and the two reasons. How many? That, how many government hunters would be in Oregon? So there's about 27 wildlife specialists. That's what they call all of us okay, in so the whole state. Uh, as far as people that hunt lions full time all the time, I'm the only one. Really? Yes. Full that does time. it full time. Now, is that because of the this location you're in has yes. a lot of nuisance lion activity? Yeah, and I work in a in a big geographical area. My area responsibility is about twelve thousand square miles. Oh right? wow! So, 12. so how yeah. far might you have to drive to handle a nuisance call? Uh there's there's times I have to even camp out, but a a, a general drive for me very commonly is a hundred to one hundred and fifty miles okay. each way. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. so one hundred and fifty in the morning and then one hundred and fifty yeah, back yeah, in yeah. the afternoon. Yeah. But there's not much traffic here, so it doesn't mm-hmm. take that long. Yeah, that's yeah. not too bad. So, um, 
I guess there was a time when you could hunt lions in Oregon, just like you could buy a hunting license and hunt lions in Oregon. When did that stop? Uh, so uh, Measure 18 that made that illegal was passed December 8th of 1994. Mm. So uh, the last 26 years. Yes, and uh, and I certainly had my job way before then, but uh, uh, my job has evolved more. I always had some lion complaints, but uh, now in this part of Oregon and, and, and all over the state, except with the exception of a few places uh, with their populations unchecked and they don't have a lot of natural predators, uh, it actually is quite a, a, a game management, so to speak, if you will, a success story because without natural predators and uh, no hunting pressure at all, uh, they th they figured at one time in the late 60s there was maybe three or 400 lions in Oregon, and although they're really hard to census, they figure they're somewhere in the neighborhood to five to 7,000 now oh, wow. in the state. Well, it's a... I mean, I think the thing that people don't understand, especially people, I mean, hunters would, but even hunters, John, I think sometimes don't understand the, uh, I mean, an unchecked predator population, especially a lion, especially a lion. I mean, they're, they're causing significant issues in different parts of the state. And you guys are offering a essential service. I mean, essential. I mean, uh, and so that's, that's what's so neat. Um, what would be like a typical, and I want to, I want to get past this. We just needed to establish kind of what you did and your level of, cause I want to get to talking about dogs and mules and, sure. and, and kind of the history of your dogs. We just walked through and you gave us a little tour of some of your dogs and Impressive. Pretty, yeah, it was incredible. incredible. Um, but like what, what would be a typical nuisance complaint? So, uh, how that works is uh, the agency I work for is basically a, uh, uh, an agent for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife has all jurisdiction and control over what happens to all game animals in Oregon. And they don't have, quote unquote, you know, people like me that would uh, deal with wildlife related problems. And, and I'm very focused in a very narrow thing in what I do. But when they, uh, in my geographic area responsibility, when they get a call or it comes directly to me uh, that a mountain lion's either depredated on livestock or is a threat to human health and safety, uh, those calls would be directed to me. Uh, the first thing I'd do is I'd go out and confirm that that's exactly what it is or not, because there's a lot of things that happen in the livestock world that uh, livestock dies for lots of different reasons. And, right. and sometimes... Sometimes I will tell you that things get blamed for it that didn't really do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that being said, uh, I'm real busy doing what I do, and and we definitely have a uh, you know there's a very robust population of lions all throughout Central Oregon, and uh, they are a, the apex predator here. We don't have a lot of wolves in my part of the country yet, so uh, mountain lions are certainly something that uh, cause people large economic uh, losses. And you really can't put a price tag on a human safety thing, whether they're, you know, uh, kill a dog in someone's yard or follow their kids to the school bus stop. Or uh, mm -hmm. Oregon actually in September of 2018 had its uh, first human fatality. Yeah. Uh, and Washington I actually was involved too, right? in that. Yeah. In, in Washington, yeah. Uh, right, right, right after that, so a biker was killed in, hmm. in Washington. So one of wow. the things that, uh, you know, the – 
the statement like, oh, there's never been a killing in, in so many years and so many years in Oregon and Washington. And, and then all of a sudden it was like, bam, two wow. people got killed within the same. I mean, it was wow. a short so 18-month period. These that, problem lines like with livestock, would it be a, a, a stressed-out lion that wasn't able to get natural food? Like what, what's your interpretation of why they – start like preying on what what are they killing cattle or sheep or yeah so they they actually i've caught lions that have depredated on all kinds of domestic animals whether it be sheep or goats uh they're in central oregon one of the things they do a lot is they kill horses really they'll uh, kill yeah horse. they, they'll kill an adult horse or wow. a colt uh they uh the sheep and goats are something they kill a lot they kill quite a few calves you know domestic calves or uh beef calves so these aren't stressed out it's not necessarily like these are animals that are no i would say for the most part most of the lions that you take that i have to deal with at work are completely healthy individuals that just, just they're opportun opportunistic that's mm -hmm. exactly what i was just going to say i think that most apex predators are pretty opportunistic and when something is a food source they utilize it do you find uh, are there certain areas that just always have problems yeah and and, and the places that always have problems are those places that are just like uh, almost all of Central Oregon is pretty good lion habitat, but they're they're just as in anything in nature. There are certain pieces of geography or areas that are very conducive for those animals to use, and being the opportunistic hunters that they are, people that have operations in those kind of places definitely suffer just, more losses than someone that's out on the fringes of what a lion would call home. Yeah, you know, yeah. all this country that we've seen so far. I mean, it kind of surprises me that there's a lion out here. I mean, that, and, and I don't know real good lion habitat, but I mean, I'm talking, there's some barren hillsides with just Not these little, much little small draws with timber. And Buddy was telling us, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be in these little draws and just, they don't need a lot of forest cover. Oh no. Uh, mountain lions actually all throughout their habitat through the Western United States, they do just as good or better in, in real arid desert and semi-desert country as long as the topography is rough enough for them to hunt in mm -hmm. and they actually do better in that than they do where there's so they trees. just need a little topographic cover to be able to slip up on something get above them and come in down or you know they just need they they wouldn't do good hunting and just like ultra flat stuff. They they do they do hunt and catch things out in big flats and you will find you will trail lions when you're hunting them out through you know big expanses of open country but they predominantly you know there's a reason they call them mountain lions and they they do predominantly use the roughest part of the real estate wherever they call home. Mm -hmm. So I got a question, John. I I don't know. So you've seen probably more deprivations and kill sites and stuff like that. How does a cougar in your if you had to you don't get to watch it happen, but what's their number one mo? Like, do they how how do you think if you had to look at it and go how is this animal stalked and yeah, killed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, do you see a pattern? I mean, do you see it in a drainage? I mean, of course, I guess one thing is the cougar drags it off a lot of times, so you don't actually see the kill site, I guess. But well, I I think the I think the main thing is is that they're they hunt by stealth not by endurance and so they uh, a lion in order to catch something has got to be pretty close to its prey when it makes that initial sortie to catch it and so I 
the rougher the country is, the easier it is for them to be close to him. But that being said, I've seen where they've caught all kinds of prey out in great big open flats just with grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as an ammo, they, you know, they naturally, you know, prey animals are have very razor sharp senses. So a lion's got to defeat their sense of smell, their sense of hearing, and their sense of sight to be close enough to them. Uh, you know, there's probably nothing nothing much that lives here that's faster in a, than a lion in that hundred yard dash. Yeah, uh, yeah. But after that, they're, you know, they're, they got to catch them pretty quick. Yes. Have you ever seen a lion catch anything? No, I have not. I've, I've sure got to see it, you know, uh, just, you know, in the dust and snow yeah. where it's like a book, but it, to actually physically watch it. No, I never have. Wow. My dad got to watch one. He was up on in Colorado. He was mm. up on top of a cliff and he watched uh, a deer he was watching a couple deer and he said those deer would mingle this way a little bit and he couldn't figure it out and then they mingle this way and it, it just mingled and he said behind it was a lion that went one side and the deer just kind of and then in that you think they knew they were being stalked he said they didn't run but they just kind of like meandered and he said that lion kind of worked those deer into a canyon and then oh, poof, took them down and wow. he said it was kind of really he said this he was just hunting he hunts a lot like you do just stays and he'll sit on a spot for the day yeah and so it took him you know but he was telling me that he watched one take down one one time wow that would be really interesting that would be really cool to see wow wow yeah um so i was i was asking about like different like are there places that always have trouble um yeah and you answered that What's the, what would you say the biggest, is there one of those species that they usually get? And I guess I would have to be, deal with what farmers had, but I mean, what do you think they would prefer a horse over a sheep or? So if I, if I rated it in categories, I I'd say as far as like domestic things that get, uh, depredated on in central Oregon by lions, uh, probably horse colts and, and but there's less of them, but horse colts and calves are tied for number one, but they would way rather eat a horse colt, but there's less of them. And then adult horses. They'd rather eat a horse colt than a calf. They'd rather eat a horse colt than almost anything. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's, they think they're, it's like that elk, that, that, predatory instinct for a gazillion years. I don't know that, but I know other folks that I talk to in other parts of the world, central Oregon is unique in a couple of ways about that. And maybe one of the reasons it happens so much here is to the Southwest side of where I work. We have a large Indian reservation that has a big population of, of uh, free roaming horses. Uh And then about a hundred miles to the East here, we have a uh, two mountain ranges that have a lot of free ranging horses that range on them. Mm. And so I, I, it's my thought and it could be completely wrong, but I think it's probably has something to do with it is that lions know that that is a prey source growing up. And then when they show up to a ranch and I mean, if, if you grew up eating horse colts out in the, you know, out in a mountain range, and you show up to a ranch and there's a horse colt there, you're going to hunt just, it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but they certainly, uh, the, there's not many left, but the people that, uh, have range bands of sheep sometimes have severe trouble with them. They do definitely like to kill sheep and goats. Yeah. Uh, and then as far as like animals that live on your ranch, you know, domestic stock, they prey on that would be the biggest list here. I've, I've seen where they've killed everything from chickens to adult horses. Mm-hmm. So there is not mm-hmm. anything really that's immune, but I would say that's they're gonna, probably they're the, gonna get yeah. it. Yeah, do but they, I'd say that's the biggest 
Yeah, do they ever kill for sport? Like, do you ever find something just laying there that they didn't try to consume? Absolutely. Uh, and and I don't know that I would term it as sport, uh, mm. but anybody that's dealt with mountain lions very much absolutely knows that, that, that uh, mountain lions absolutely do kill things that they don't eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very common. Uh, I mean, it's actually... Uh, the most sheep I've ever seen killed in one pile is 46. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and that lion actually killed those 46 sheep and had a, uh, a great Pyrenees guard dog and a spike bull elk killed in the same canyon with all those sheep. Wow. How long a period of time? Uh, as far as I know, that happened in one night. Wow. But it, it, but at the most, it could have been two nights. But That's I think incredible it, hearing that coming from you because, I mean, you you saw that. You knew that. Mm-hmm. That's that's insane. That's a lot of energy too. Like you, you wouldn't think that a cat would want to do something like I guess do it's that just much. Instinctive. I mean, it's just like kill, and another opportunity presents itself. And yeah, just just capitalizes. You know, I guess a wild animal. I mean, a group. If those had been wild animals, they would have run off. You know, yeah. correct. But these are confined animals, and so it probably just triggers that kill response what do you think i i would guess i mean you know i know that's one of the things that are talked about about if people encounter lions that you you know you don't want to run you don't want to trigger that chase response with them and and i'm sure that when range bands of sheep aren't fenced in per se but they have a herder with them and guard dogs and and herding dogs and those lions are pretty biurnal or nocturnal you know they're most active in the daylight in the in the dark hours of the day but they do do some things in the daytime as well but i'm sure when they get into a bed ground at night where all those sheep are bedded at night and they catch the first one and they all take off running uh i'm sure that does elicit that chase yeah. response and then yeah. i think they just you know i think that's the way god built them they're just supposed yeah. to catch stuff they're supposed yeah. to catch stuff John, so you started as a government tra- a government hunter when you were 17. Yeah. Tell me about your, like, just how did you get involved in this? Did your dad do it? Did uh, My real dad passed away when I was super young, but I had an interest in, in the trapping deal, which I started as a trapper since I was uh, barely old enough to read. And when I first went to work for Wildlife Services, uh, we Oregon didn't have the lion population that we have now. And so from 1981 until probably, oh, like the late 80s, I didn't do a lot of lion hunting because we just didn't have a lot of complaints. And then the northeast and the southwest corners of Oregon have always been the strongholds. Even when there wasn't many lions in Oregon, that was the two places, if you look in the old Mm. uh, bounty records and stuff, uh, the southwestern counties of Oregon and the northeastern counties is where most of them were. But as that, after you know, they in the 70, in about 1970, they made them a game animal. And you had to draw for a tag, and then there was very limited hunting. And Can mount- I stop you right there? Yes, Just sir. Just to explain. Um, so when you say they became a game animal, it means they they came protected. Yes, they bar- to, they hunted them for before they, that they, hunted they were them paying for, people to kill them, and they hunted them for bounties. And they and there was people that earned a living doing that. And that's that's been in the forties, fifties, sixties. And then when they became a game animal, they came under the management, just like they would manage deer. They would of manage Oregon elk. Depa- the Oregon Department of Fish yeah. and Wildlife did that, and that's correct. I just and, wanted uh, to clarify that. Yes, mm-hmm. and and then. 
uh, they 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 became a game animal, and it was just like a deer or an elk tag that you'd get in Oregon for a limited area. You had to apply for those, and they do. The state of Oregon is broke up in zones, and it's like there's like five. I think it's A, B, C, D, E, and F. I think I think there's five zones, five or six. And uh, I only work in Central Oregon, so I don't pay attention a lot to the rest <laughs> of them. But anyway, and so they would have a limited number of tags for each zone mm. and uh and of course uh and then as it came and i was involved in that too and i do that on weekends for fun and stuff but if one of my friends could draw a tag but uh when it, when it was legal to hunt them for sport uh you know hunting mountain lions with dogs is one of the most uh probably you know you can be very selective about yeah. what you mm-hmm. harvest so yeah. if you knew you're only going to get one lion tag in your lifetime uh, females with uh, with uh, kittens or spotted kittens have always been protected, but no one was going to harvest one of those anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and, right. It, you know, they were going to harvest yeah. an adult male. Yeah, yeah. The story in Oregon, I mean, that's what saved the lion was sportsmen. You exactly. know what I mean? Like sportsmen and conservation, and, you, pre- you preach that a lot, I know, Clay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the story. I mean, that's a massive win when an animal does come under the protection of the law. You know I mean? And, exactly. And I think... I think that's a misunderstanding that a lot of people have, especially the non-hunting world. That you yeah. know, we're we're for these animals, not against them. Yeah, and, and we had a regulation, and then whenever they got outlawed, it's like it just. It so just, it's like you got one extreme, extreme, and and then you got the other extreme, and it's like, yeah. why can't we just live in the middle? Or get get the management side down, and so, that would be nice. But when did you first start lion hunting? So I would have, I would have uh, owned my first. I've I've always owned dogs that I used at work ever since I went to work in 1981. Uh, but I got my first lion dogs in 1989. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So that's when I. That's when I. Who taught you how to lion hunt? Well, so I actually learned from a bunch of people, but uh, I went through a trial and error with that, uh, just like everyone that learns everything. But uh, one of the things that. Uh, uh, kind of not drove me but but caused me to be where I'm at today is I got more and more lion complaints uh this part of the world people really only hunted lions for sport and they only hunted them in the winter uh and uh, anybody that's hunted lions at all or or even just been in lion country you know it is uh it's just a whole bunch easier uh like I can't even tell you how many times it'd be but if you have the right snow conditions that that is pretty much in the northwest and i'd say from there there is some real good dry ground lion hunters in parts of nevada and utah but pretty much most of northern U, most of northern utah and nevada and then when you took in when it was legal in oregon and certainly wyoming montana colorado it's illegal to hunt them in california but and then oregon washington idaho uh people just didn't really hunt them any other time of year except if there was snow on the right. ground uh, and the few lions, even for people that worked in our agency uh, that had dogs even before me, if they didn't have a uh, a place to start from, like a brand new kill uh, that was like a night old, uh, or somebody called them and said, hey, a lion just crossed the road and they could be there a couple hours you know, afterwards and stuff, uh, that's all kind of catching a lion on the short end of what it did. And uh, we're not afforded that luxury most of the time doing what we do for a living in places like where I live. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, so uh, when that started to take place, 
and I told you that I just got a couple dogs in 1989, and I wouldn't consider myself a professional lion hunter yet, although I've done it quite a bit. Uh, but <laughs> you're, still, any, you're still working on it. Yeah, you're just, I'm you're a just work, the apprentice. I'm a work in progress. But anyway, uh, what uh, what happened was is uh, uh, I can tell you if uh, <clears throat> there's a there's a big ranch about 50 miles south of where we're sitting that uh, had a bunch of exotics. It was a high fence ranch, and uh, it was about this time. It was a little bit later. It was actually Labor Day weekend, uh, and the fellow that owned it called me and said, "Hey." I've got a lion that's uh, that's really working on my exotics, and I'd mm. sure like you to come try and help me with it. And and so this part of the world, until, oh, you know, like November, you're really not going to have a lot of precipitation, and, and, and you've seen what it's like here today. But this yeah. is a typical summer, fall day today here. And uh, anyway, I had... Uh, a volunteer houndsman that used to help me a little bit. And then I had, there's a couple guys that worked for us that had a few dogs and, uh, hunting a lion on a hundred degree day is a lot different than going and catching one when right. it's snowy. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, to make a long story kind of short, we started trying to catch that lion in September. And the first time it snowed that year was like in no, like the first week in December and that line had been in and out of that country, and I'd had numerous fellas there numerous times trying to help me catch that lion. And, and uh, anyway, it finally snowed in December, and I went out and cut a big circle and finally found the thing's track. And then I got some guys here uh, that actually worked for us, and we, like, had the lion caught in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what? You can't count on those kind of things happening. So that kind of set me on a, uh, a quest or a journey, if you would say, about uh, – finding people that knew yeah. how to do that. Yeah. And yeah. that's how yeah. I got in, 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 uh, cause through. you needed to be able to catch a lion in any condition uh, in and any, for, and for people that wouldn't be, you know, they're for people that wouldn't know as much about, uh, hound hunting, a snow track would hold the scent. I mean, like exponentially, it would hold exponentially more scent and make easier trailing conditions and then, then a track in the dirt, as they say. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, like a track out here would be, you would have to have a, I mean, a, a top end dog to be able to trail in these conditions. So for people that wouldn't understand a dry ground line hunter, that's like top of the pile mm-hmm. nationally when it comes to big game dogs. Am I right, buddy? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, there's. There are conditions. Except for you snow. bobcat hunters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Second mm-hmm. only to bobcat hunters. Yeah. From, <laughs> from protect Oregon. the snow hunters here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull. There are some snow conditions that are absolutely sure, sure, horrible. Sure. Rain on top of snow can be. Does, you know I mean, so um, absolutely to, to do it, you know, without precipitation, it takes a lot of work. And but it, but but to be the devil's advocate. To just be like, oh, snow hunting's easy. There is some serious consequences in sure. snow and rain on snow. You know, there's some yeah, situations yeah, where, um, and I always liken it to, like, I'll use it as a bear, bear hunt, right? Clay, you know, we weren't. Only we, talk to me in bear metaphors. <laughs> okay. uh, this, this way you can understand it, right? Or, mu- or mules. We, mules or I bears. Was, if you'd had a better bear guy, we didn't, we didn't, we have, we still got time, but we haven't killed your, you were going to come over here and kill a bear. We hadn't done it. And so, I liken it to you, I've, and I've watched you, and you haven't watched me, but 
you're a bear hunter. I, I have no doubts that if you spent more time here in my country, you would kill a bear. I mean, you're just, that's what you're focused on. That's what you think about. And so I always liken it to a cat hunter. Like I have no doubts that this man right here, if he had to come over my country with rain or whatever, and the conditions were different, he's going to figure out how to catch a I mean, There's right. a cat hunter, you know what I mean? And, and there's a lion hunter and, and it don't matter what the conditions are. He's going to figure out how to do it in those conditions. And so you get some upper cold, you know, up north, really, really, really cold conditions. You know, we talked yeah. to the guys in, in uh, Canada where you're talking minus 30, minus 40. I think those, that takes a special dog too. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, yeah, no, no, that's great. That's so, great. You know, it's, but, it's easy to generalize, yeah. you know, but, but what, 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 that right there, what we're looking out the window and seeing the desert and all that's that. He points out cold, the window. Yeah. The desert. Beautiful. Right underneath a mule deer. What? <laughs> yeah, that, that's John. That, that's what's impressive. a what's a what's the oldest track that your dogs could? I mean, could they? Let's just give a like if it was eighty five degrees, dry. If somebody called you with a twenty hour old track, could you trail it? Probably not. So, buddy brings up a good thing. So, all when I when I said dry ground conditions or snow or whatever. So, scent conditions change radically throughout a day no matter what kind of conditions you have uh so i should rephrase that i I can tell you some of the toughest lion tracks that i've ever trailed and caught were made on solid ice Mm. solid ice is horrible to trail on Mm. uh but like fresh new snow that's soft and powdery and it's and the temperature doesn't get much below 15 degrees is a pretty easy track for most decent dogs to trail the thing that's different about a snow track, and and I'll tell you the hugest difference. So the two things that keep you from catching a lion is time and distance. Uh, time elapsed since the animal passed through where you're at, how far it walked after it did it. Uh, the benefit of snow is is that you can visually track that track. Uh, you and I could get a horseback and go on a lion track that those dogs couldn't trail at all, and we could travel at a trot along that thing until they could trail it. Uh, that is something that you can't do in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with Buddy. You know, rain on top of snow. I will tell you this: uh, moisture is ruinous to scent, no matter what it is. And so, whatever conditions that you're hunting in, you want it to not change. Okay. Uh, if grounds froze, I want it to stay froze. If grounds thawed, I want it to stay thawed. If it's snowy, I don't want it to melt. If it's dry, I don't want it to rain. Okay. Uh, actually, since and I am not a bobcat hunter, although I have some friends, one of them sitting right to the right of me, that are really good ones. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Bobcat, bobcat <laughs> hunting and the conditions that they do where that moisture changes constantly is probably one of the hardest games there is to play with dogs consistently. Mm. Catching a lion in the desert on a day like today is probably a close second. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. uh, so That's good. So changing conditions is are, more important than anything. Okay. Yeah, change, change of, sense. yeah. And, and, and if you think about it in terms of that, snow is just suspended moisture. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah. And, and I was going to say that, that change, and I'm glad – John, like, if John's an apprentice, I'm, like, still in kindergarten, right? <laughs> I was going to be like, you know, kindergarten word of the day was change. And I was, I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was going to bring up was, you know, the change is what seems like we yeah. fight on a track is, 
is, you know, when you go out in the morning, you have a certain time that it changes. And, and if you can't get it caught or jumped or whatever it is, your, your goal is for the day before that change starts happening, whether it's the dew melting off or whatever, I think, um, you find that's where that track just kind of it maybe changes speed or yeah. dog's got to readjust or well, I mean what so so you asked about how old of a track uh, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go into that a little bit because that's one of the cool things about doing this uh, I have seen the strains of dogs that I own which I have take no credit for what they are except that I get to give them rides to the hills all the time yeah uh, but the <laughs> men that taught me how to do this and have raised and trained those strains of dogs forever. Uh, those dogs are really good at, at moving a tough track through bad country. Uh, but that being said, uh, lots of things change in tracks, and this this is an interesting thing. I've seen where these dogs can trail a six or eight old or old walking lion track as it's traveling through the country, and you jump that lion say ten or eleven o'clock in the morning and jumped would mean that that lion has to get up and move from those dogs to you know to try and evade them and i have seen where those dogs have a way harder time trailing a 10 minute old mm-hmm. trot and lion track than they do an eight hour old walking one and i've watched i've i've actually and i'm not embarrassed to say this but i've seen lions with my eyes that my dogs have had jump that they can't catch why is that john i would love to answer that for you <laughs> but i can't uh, you know, so the coon I, hunters say the same thing, and, and I, I coon hunt in Arkansas, and there's an age-old thing. When you're going coon hunting, and it's gotten dark, and a coon crosses the road in your hunting ground, and you turn your dog loose, and way more times than you like to admit, your dog won't tree that coon. Even, even you know, it's, it's a fresh track. And I've, I've heard guys say, well, what you do, Clay, is you... Just stop your truck, don't cross the track, wait 15 or 20 minutes, and then come back in and turn your dog out, and they'll be able to tree it. Because it, it's the same story you're saying there. I, I All of the professional lion hunters that I'm friends with, uh, and if you, t- again, we're kind of talking about apples and oranges, but, you know, if if you told a lot of folks that hunt in the Northwest that hunt in good snow conditions or whatever, uh, in not country that's horribly horrible geog- geographically, like a lot of bluffs and rock slides and big, rough, real steep canyons, which lions always live in rough places, but some of the places we hunt are exceedingly rough. Uh, and you told them that you had a lion get away from your dogs. I've had people actually laugh at me about that. And I mean, I I, hmm. I, I would be scared to even tell you how many of those things. I probably had more get away than I Do I'd you call. have any any like hypothesis of the scent? situation like like with a yeah they can trail an eight hour old track easier than a than a 15 minute old track where the lion's trotting in front of them uh you know what i don't have an answer to that uh one of my mentors i had one of those things happen one day and called him on the phone and talked to him about it for quite a bit and I said, man, I just don't, you know, here's, I drew out the deal. I drew him a word, a picture with words and told him what happened. And, and his answer to me was, he's like, well, you know, they couldn't smell it. And I was like, yeah, I knew that. I actually wanted to know why. And he goes, oh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> so <laughs> well, when the greats don't even make a, 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 a guess, I guess there's no, no sense in me making a guess either. So I'm going to go with what you said. When somebody asked me about a coon, I'm going to say it's unanswerable. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that if those dogs out there could smell it, is what John's like, they would have kept going. <laughs> they yes. they, they don't know the answer either, huh? 
No, and, and that's the deal. I, I, that was the, the, like I said, the man that I asked that, he said, you know, he goes, if they could smell it, they'd chase it. And yeah. I'm like, well, I knew that. I want to know why they couldn't smell it. And he's like, oh, I don't have the answer for that. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I told him, I said, well, I wish you were here. And he said, why? He said, so two of us could have been standing there confused instead of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so if, while we're talking about lion tracks, we've talked about the scent, like distance. I think that would be a, a question that people would have. So a lion is this predator that have these massive home ranges, so they can cover a lot of ground. They certainly do. Like, tell me about a long lion track, like one that you started, trailed, and jumped and treed. Like, so I can tell you, I can tell you some uh, both ends of the spectrum. Uh, Lions, on an average, I'd say if I do keep pretty close track of that, and I'd say the average lion track that I start from scratch and catch hunting in the conditions I hunt in that are where I don't trail it off of a brand new kill, which is maybe once or twice a year. Usually I'm a little behind the eight ball. Uh, the average lion that I catch, I trail about seven miles. Mm. Uh, I've trailed them as short as a quarter of a mile and caught them. Uh, matter of fact, this man sitting to the right of me, we caught one one day that did that very thing. Mm. Maybe it went, but no, it went about a quarter of a mile and I've trailed them at a good clip all day and look at it. And now with the technology that we have, thanks to Garmin and Buddy, you can do that. But I've, I've trailed a lot of lions, uh, 15 to 20 miles and not jumped them. Wow. Uh, so it's just, so you're that in, in to describe that process, like a seven or eight miles, that lion's not being pursued. Like oh, that, no. That lion's just going about his normal business. Your yes. dogs are cold trailing. Trailing, so yes. That, that very so the jump, once they're jumped, they don't necessarily run that far. I would say on an average that if in, in my country and stuff, that very seldom does a lion run over a mile jumped. Okay. Yeah. So that means when he's running away from barking dogs. Yes. When he's trying to elude being captured, he, she, it, whatever yeah. lion it is, I would say for the most part that when they're when they when they have to get up and move from being pursued and that that would be what we hound lion hunters or hunters period call a jump track I would say seldom those last for over a mile right so see, I got a question I'm going to interrupt here you asked uh, me and Jason a, a question on our podcast which was the tricks right oh do you, if do you I, remember if that I, yeah if an animal you, yeah, you want me to ask him? Yeah, that? I want you, and I'll probably screw the question up. So if you can remember, because I, I have horrible Yeah, memory, so, so, you know, we all, people say it in coon hunting, they say it in bear hunting, you know, bobcats. not as much bear hunting, but bobcats and foxes and different things, that an animal, once it's jumped and knows it's being pursued, does it have a strategy to lose that animal that's chasing it? Like, for instance, like, coming back on its own track. And, and, that, and a lot of times we give an ant, I feel like we give an animal too much credit for reasoning. Like, like, is that animal trying to lose these dogs that are pursuing it? Does it know it's being, I mean, I guess it knows it's being pursued. So I would tell you this, uh, and uh, any animal I think has, has some power to figure out what's hazardous to it. And I think that if, uh, and since you're interviewing me, we're going to talk about lions because that's about all I know about. But uh, if a lion has been pursued by dogs several times and and managed to escape somehow, they definitely understand 
that dogs, when they hear dogs and that we can, you can ask me questions later about that. But, uh, when they hear a dog barking up its track, I think they definitely put that together with the, of a negative experience. And I think I can tell you this, that in tough trailing conditions, and I kind of went into that for a minute, but if a lion's being pursued by dogs and it, and it is starting to, you know, like through their very nature, when you trail one on their own, when they're not being pursued, all cats will walk their back track. So if a lion's not being pursued, absolutely. And we've all seen them do it. They, whether it's in the snow or the dust, I've seen where lions walked out a ridge for a quarter of a mile, turned around, walked right back on its track and turned off at a right angle and went off. Why do they do that? I just what they do. It's what God, how God built them to do. They do that. So, but that being said, I do think that if a lion is, uh, if, if, if a lion's been, you know, chased and pursued by dogs and managed to get away, I can tell you that they use geography to their advantage mm. in a huge fashion. And I, I in my life in particular, I had one tom lion that had killed a bunch of sheep on a big ranch south of where we're sitting right now. And I had that lion jump five different times before I caught it. And two of the five times I saw it. And every time he got away, it was in the same canyon. So he, he had a trick. Oh, yeah. He absolutely, one, one time I watched him go into that canyon with 12 of the best dogs I owned right on his tail. And that lion came out of there about a minute and a half later, right on his backtrack. Mm. And I watched him come out of there, hit another rim and go off into another canyon. I called the dogs off where they were. And you can imagine how disappointed I was. And it was the day I called my mentor and told him about it, but that lion hadn't been gone for 10 minutes and I got those dogs right there. The last place I saw that lion and they could not wail, wag their tails or bark on that track. Wow. And that was the end of the hunt for the day. Wow. I did eventually catch him, but it, it took five tries. Mm. I mean, it took more than five days, but it took five times getting him going. So that being said, uh, you know, it's the whole scent thing and, and, and how dogs handle a track. And Buddy actually could probably, you know, bobcats by their very nature do more uh, what we would call ducking and dodging and, and circling right, right. and running their back track and stuff. But there are definitely some lions, especially I've had a couple of spoiled females that were in, in tough conditions were pretty hard to catch. Wow. That's incredible. We had a, a, a cat, uh, with with Bart, we're at a female, mm-hmm. and, and he told me ahead of time. He goes, "Man, this is going to be a show when we when we try and catch this cat." And again, we had the Garmin GPS, which you know I was talking. To. It is way cool to see the cat, and and so, anyways, I'm showing up, and and it was uh, the, the their dogs, and boy, that lion circle circle come through here, and I mean, we've seen the I think we've seen the cat four times, five times, and you know, what I mean, just do different. And it was a female, and like I said doesn't happen very often i mean that was just such a unique cat that that must have gotten away and learned that it could you know but it mm. ducking some brush and the dogs pass it and dump out the brush and and the only reason we would have known that because of the garmin you know what i mean like it was just we, we were able to see, we wouldn't have seen that cat once but it was like we could just see the cat was like shoot it's coming towards us and so we run down the road and slip across the road and incredible i mean it was just you know in in that situation that cat knew what it was doing. I mean, it was it was mm. doing some things that had been successful before or whatever, and, and and they told me ahead of time they go, "You watch this cat when we time to go." They knew it was going to do that. Yeah. I just had an epiphany, um, John. Tell me what you think about this. I think Garmin needs to make a handheld unit called the Buddy. 
How about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I would second that. <laughs> Can I get a royalty on that? <laughs> we'll talk buddy. to Norman. Yeah. The buddy. I like it. Hey, tell John, tell me about your dogs. So so we've 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 established you and what you do and your history inside of all this. We've I think we've given people a, a pretty good snapshot into uh into trailing conditions and the differences in trailing conditions and stuff. But I know you as a lion hunter and just standing out here with you talking about your dogs and stuff. I mean, this is a, I mean, a, a, a houndsman's dogs are significant to them. Sure. Uh, you're what, what kind of dog does it take to be a, a good line dog. Could you describe a good line dog for me? Yeah, they, I, I think all dogs, all hunting dogs, I think probably the, you know, they all have to have a lot of tools in their toolbox to be successful at what they do. But, uh, it, there's a lot of things that go into making that. And I think the people that can, that, have, that can make those are people that, you know, exponentially over an extended period of time have done that. And, uh, all the dogs I have, uh, the the breeding of these dogs come from actually three different places. Uh, the majority of them we already talked out at the kennels, but uh, are from a family of uh, longtime family of lion hunters in southern Arizona, uh, Scott and Sam Derringer. Uh, yeah. And now Sam's boy Scotty is adding to that mix. Uh, and then I do have, uh, not many, I do have a dog or two out of Warner Glenn's dogs, who is another yeah. very famous, very well-known Southwest lion hunter. I mean, those three are probably the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I do have a couple of dogs that are out of uh, the breeding from Blue Millsap, who is another government lion hunter who just retired out of North Central California. Mm-hmm. And those dogs would go back for decades and decades way back to uh steve mathis's dogs Mm -hmm. who if anybody reads about lion hunters in the west would have uh he wrote a book and was uh, a bounty lion hunter and then guided lion and jaguar hunters in central america and then uh uh, anyway and worked for wildlife services which actually was a different animal damage control when he worked for him but anyway so the 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 breed of dogs that I mostly hunt are all from the Derringers in southern Arizona with just a little bit of how, how would you describe to me the traits of those dogs like uh like I think most people would understand and obviously there's going to be some like dedicated houndsmen a lot of dedicated houndsmen that are in this conversation with us but also there's people that wouldn't know hounds at all sure you know so like my coon dogs in Arkansas like like what's the What's the difference? What what does it take to make a dry ground lion dog? So, I mean, I think all hunting dogs, to be really good ones, have, have to have a big brain and use it. Uh, I think that's probably the number one thing that all hunting dogs have to possess. Uh, and and then, you know, how you describe different things that dogs own, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll just go, I mean, they have to have really good feet. Okay. Because they travel. So on an average day, if I ride 20 miles, those dogs probably run 50. Mm. And if I hunt six or seven days a week, I mean, if you do the math, I mean, some of those dogs in that kennel are going to walk, you know, you know, 250 to 350 miles a week. So they've got to be extreme athletes. Yes. They have to be very athletic. That's something that, that I think I certainly didn't understand years ago, that these big game hounds are the extreme athletes of the dog world. I mean, it's hard to, it maybe somebody could tell me something and maybe there's others that are like it. But I mean, when you talk, when you put it like that, 
I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so they have to have really good feet, and they have to be real athletic. Uh, they have to have a lot of drive to do what they do. And 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 I'll tell you, uh, getting dogs from the places I get them, uh, those folks have raised that kind of dog forever, and and they've used it to do this one thing for a living for so long that they they have developed a strain of dogs that, and I take no credit for that, except that I, I'm blessed to have them and I get to take them hunting a lot, but, uh, they, they definitely, you know, they, they, all of those traits. And then, and I mean, you know, people talk about a dog's ability to locate and tree and trail and all that stuff. And, and those dogs have to have all those things. But one of the things that, uh, a lot of the country I hunt in, a lot of, and we can look at it later or whatever, but a lot of lions I catch don't even tree in a tree. We'll catch them in a rock slide or bay them on top of a cliff or catch them in a cave. And even though your dogs have to have a lot of prey drive and, the, and a lot of desire to catch them, they got to have enough smarts to not go in there and get themselves killed right. once they yeah. get to the point where they get yeah. to them. Yeah, so and yeah, they yeah. are and these dogs are like that. Yeah. Uh, even though they even though they have a tremendous prey drive, so they can't be too catchy, as they say. Yeah, I, uh, you know people always nervy. Say, the guys the guys out in the App, Southern Appalachians call it nervy. <laughs> I, I've heard people describe it as gritty. Yeah, gritty. And I don't know. Yeah. I, I, anyway, they. Uh, uh, I mean, if a tom lion weighs 150 pound dog 150 pounds and a dog weighs 40 it's a cinch who's going to win the wrestling match so yeah. they, they need to not do that yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so it's not healthy for them if they if they it isn't <laughs> yeah a true they, story so um would these dogs have way better noses i mean i think it's kind of a given but would they have like way better noses than your typical coon dog I, and again, you know what? I can't answer that. Uh, I, a, this will make you laugh, but I've never seen a raccoon treated by dogs, yeah. so I don't. I don't know what. Uh, I don't know what. Uh, right, right. That takes to do. Uh, and again, uh, I think these dogs, because of what we do with them, uh, will definitely focus in on a very minute amount of sand in a track and and push that track through the country. Do you think some of that's trained in them just from circumstance? Like I once heard a really good, a reputable bear houndsman, old guy out in the Appalachians tell me that he felt like that all his dogs had the equal ability to smell, but the ones that were their cold trail dogs just had more desire and an inclination to trail an old track. Now, I'm not saying that was true. It was just an interesting thought because he was like, that dog can't smell any better than that dog, but that dog will take a 12-hour-old track and that one won't. And he felt like it was more than their nose. It just made got me thinking about it. You know what I mean? So I'm going to let Buddy talk about this too, but I have had people tell me that. And and the the one advantage you have when you hunt lions like I do is where I sit a horseback or a, on a saddle mule, right with my dogs for hours and hours on end and watch them grind on a bad track, and you see other dogs in that pack of dogs, they put their nose down on the same rock that that dog right next to him did, and that and that dog right next to him is firing on that track and you know burning rubber up the canyon, and that dog that other dog that's smelling that rock and it stays, he wants to do that or she as the case may be. And, and, you know, I, I am of, I am of the school that I, I don't believe that's true. Okay. I, I think that just like athletes and human beings, 
and uh, everything else, uh, whether it be horses or mules, I think some of them are just blessed with tools that other ones aren't. Yeah. That is my take on that, and that's strictly mine. Well, I mean, and that, and that makes sense. I mean, that's, I think, the the the, the best answer. Because yeah. when those other dogs, like, like for instance, uh, when, when those other dogs that are trying to cold trail that really bad track and you've got ones that can do it, and, and part of it is experience, uh, and I think we talked about it out at my kennels, but... I've seen two-year-old dogs catch a lion, but I don't know that I've ever, except for one or two in my life, I've ever really seen a two-year-old journeyman dirt lion dog that could do everything by himself in any condition from start to finish. Mm. And part of that is they learn through repetition, you know, like I've seen dogs out of a litter of dogs and one of them gets hunted a ton and one of them doesn't get hunted as much. And you take the one that's hunted a ton. If they have about the same tools in their tool bag, the one that has more experience is going to be better at his job. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that helped answer that question. No, that's a great answer. Uh, That's that's a great answer. I kind of agree with that. I, I, you know, I think your, the ability to see that level of finite, depends on how much time you put in the dog meaning yeah. in the beginning i always i, I think i say it, I, I tell young hunters myself included when i first started my dogs hunted as hard as i did you know what i mean yeah. which wasn't very hard right it, it, get loose but but the guys that will grind out and work on a hard lose or a hard track or whatever it is if they put the i think the dogs naturally hunt harder and i see that's where you start seeing those differences you know what i mean like yeah when i first started i i couldn't tell you the difference between the dogs but it's only after day in and hunting hard that you see those differences i think yeah so uh one of the things that that uh is kind of unique about this is that you'll hear people from time to time uh that hunt some or even quite a bit and they'll say oh gosh you know that track burned up so the ability for a dog to trail a track in tough conditions is exactly correlates to the physical conditioning of that dog. Uh, you guys probably all know this, but when a dog goes to panting, because right, they don't have any other way to, to regulate their body temperature, once a dog has to pant really heavy, it can't breathe through its nose and trail a track anymore. So mm. if a dog is all out of breath and overheated and panting really hard, uh, they won't be able to trail that track, but it doesn't mean that that track burned up. I've had several occasions where I've actually taken those dogs, taken them to a pond or a lake or something and got them in the water and got them cooled off, got them in the shade for like 30 minutes, which is hard when they know there's a lion track around taking those same dogs that could, that, that were, that were faltering on that and put them back on that track and successfully completed that track. Mm. So that's a pretty interesting part of that is that uh so a a dog that's real fat and out of shape just like a person or a dog or a horse or a mule they they can't operate at the level that a dog can that's hunted down Mm. so uh you know hunted and in shape and doesn't carry a lot of body fat with it and stuff so that's a that's a pretty and that doesn't happen when it's cool outside so a lot of people that hunt lions so it's tested with, with these dry ground dogs in the heat. Yes, understood exactly. Because mm-hmm. if it's cool outside, they, they it. I mean, it's easier for all of us to exercise if it's forty instead of a hundred. Yeah. yeah. So that that's something that that is unique to this kind of hunting. Yeah. Do you find dogs? Um, 
different dogs handle the heat differently? Absolutely. Years? They're just like people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing I found out that absolutely doesn't hold any water as far as I can see is, is I've had people tell me that, oh, by golly, you know, that, that dark blue or that black dog can't handle that heat. Some of the absolute toughest dogs I've ever owned have been black, mm-hmm. uh, dark darn. blue. And some of the so ones, it's not physical heat. Like no, well, I mean, I'm now. sure it, ex- it, 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 they I mean, might be a, a little dark, hotter. A dark, a dark dog definitely is going to absorb more heat, but I'll tell you, some of the toughest, the hot weather dogs I've ever seen were black or Where dark blue. Oh, yeah. What about size? That, that is one thing I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, you probably, you've already seen my dogs. So, our average females out of this strain of dogs probably weigh right around 40, 42 pounds. Mm. And I think that's just about right. And and most of our males don't weigh over 60. I do have that one dog that's a little bigger than that. But again, you don't see very many, unless they're like weightlifters or sumo wrestlers, you don't see a lot of really gigantic Olympic athletes. Uh, and, and, and again, you already hit on that. But these dogs are, on top of everything else, they are their athletes. And it's just... It's way easier on them, and they seem to hold up better their feet and joints and everything if they're kind of on the smaller side. Yeah. And yeah. again, uh, I don't hunt where there's deep snow. Uh, I know guys, buddy, has friends in British Columbia and Alberta and places like that. And I'm sure that some of my dogs, even though they could trail those tracks, it'd be a detriment if you dump them out in 30 inches of snow, they'd disappear. <laughs> yeah. you know, so I, but I don't hunt in places like that. Yeah, so yeah. I, for what we do... Uh, and the other thing is, it'd be hard to haul twenty of them with you if they were all great big ones. Yeah, yeah. If they were a third bigger. Yeah, yeah, it would be harder for sure. And I guess you know what's so neat about talking to somebody like you, John. You're hunting six days a week, a good part of the year. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, six like, or seven. So you're you're really seeing the fullest potential of some of these dogs. I mean, because that that's what makes a dog is you've taken it my miles and days is what makes a lion dog and and i think anyone that hunts uh in the conditions like i hunt which there's not a lot of people that do that but everyone that does this would i i think in some fashion tell you the same thing okay so on a walk me through a lion hunt you you know you you've decided this is a problem lion it's made a kill you take your mules over there and you take 12, 14 dogs. I don't know. Or 20. Or 20 dogs. <laughs> 20. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 so, uh, again, the, my mentors that helped me learn how to do this, uh, I'll tell you a couple of things. One is, uh, all these dogs, these really good ones have a real finite life. And once you get them up where they can go and travel with the other dogs, uh, those, those younger age dogs that are just getting started or your media age ones and and maybe not so much your old ones but i never wanted them to miss the opportunity to get in on catching a lion and so we do hunt uh, our our dogs are you know uh the fellows that taught me how to do this we all kind of do that uh and you don't want them to miss out on an opportunity to do that yeah. and 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 so you every, don't need 20 dogs to catch a line, but you want all your dogs to get all the experience possible. Exactly. Gotcha. Uh, but I will tell you something that I learned from those people, that the my mentors, and I'm going to mention them a lot because otherwise I wouldn't be where I'm at. But I will tell you this, that, that like, say, if we took 20 dogs with me today, I would have 
16 pretty well journeyman dogs and four that probably are are started and then i've got a couple young ones that i haven't started yet i can tell you that uh i I hit on it earlier but i'm going to tell you how this was explained the first time i ever went and hunted with sam derringer in southern arizona pulled up to the mouth of this canyon and uh jumped the horses out of his horse truck and and at that time when i met him i owned six dogs total Mm-hmm. And uh, man, he starts unloading dogs out of his horse truck, and I mean, in about two minutes, that whole mountain's covered with dogs, and I just was like, "Holy cow!" Mm-hmm. And uh, it being, and it took me a long, long time to get smart enough about lion hunting to even ask him an intelligent question. But I did ask him one that day, and it was the very first day, and I said, man, that is a lot of dogs. And and uh, I already hit on this, and I learned it from him, but I'll repeat it. So the only two things that kept keep you from ever catching a lion is time and distance so if if you break that down to its 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 smallest degree on a hot summer day like we have today here the difference in catching a lion and not catching a lion could easily be an hour if you had an hour longer in the day you could you maybe would have got it done so this is how was it explained to me that very first day he said uh let's say you hit a lion track pretty early in the morning and you're on the fairly short end of it and it still wouldn't be a good track this time of year because it's just bad conditions but let's say that your dogs got in five loses that lasted 12 minutes a piece so that would be 60 minutes that'd be an hour i can tell you this from doing it with my own dogs and hunting with those men down there in southern arizona for the last two and a half decades that 15 journeyman lion dogs move a track a lot faster than five so if they can shave a few minutes off of every one of those loses, and basically what it amounts to is if you have 15 journeyman lion dogs that don't bark off a track and don't bark going to one another and don't foul anything up, when they get in a lose, 15 of them are going to find that a lot faster than two or five. Because mm-hmm. if you only had five dogs, you might not have five journeymen. You might have three journeymen's ones and... And one kind of trainee and one little idiot puppy that doesn't know what's going on, which we all take yeah. those with us because otherwise. You just describe my pack. <laughs> I was going to give you three the puppy. one decent, and one puppy. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so so uh, a a a a pack of journeyman lion dogs that are hunted together all the time and are used to doing that will move that track through the country faster, and you definitely will conclude that more tracks by sense. doing that. That's There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is absolutely you that that can't be argued. Man, that's uh, that's a great way to say. Yeah, that. but any any one of those fifteen dogs is capable of catching one by themselves, or they wouldn't live at our house. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because yeah. we don't keep ones that can. So you'd you'd free cast twenty dogs. Yes. Get on your mule and just. Go. Yeah. So you asked how the so so let's just uh, so a regular standard day would be is like let's say that rancher A called and had a a horse colt killed by a lion. And the kill's old enough that you can't trail right off the kill. That would be ideal if you could do that. That very seldom happens. A lot of the ranches that I hunt on are from thirty to 400,000 acres. Mm. Uh, they don't over all that dirt all the time. And so a lot of times when these folks have problems, they call me, and, and it may be several days removed from when that happened. Wow. And that's that's the thing that... that uh, got me to learn what I learned now, what I've learned now and I continue to learn every day is that if uh if you have to be capable of going out and figuring out what lion did that and going and finding where that thing is and getting it trailed up and getting it caught or otherwise I can't do my job. 
those folks down in the southwestern United States have been doing that forever. Uh, folks in this part of the world, not so much. As a matter of fact, some of the old-time hound guys that lived in Central Oregon told me that I would never catch one in the summer, and they were absolutely incorrect in that statement mm-hmm. because I do that pretty regular. Mm. Yeah, so whenever you go out to one of these calls, do you load every, load the mules and the and the hounds up and then go decide if it's actually a lion? Actually, a lot of times, uh, if I get a call in the evening and depending on where it's at and stuff, I certainly would take all my crew with me because a lot of these places, like I said, are a two or three hour drive mm-hmm. for me. So I would take them with me. But anyway, let's just say that I got a call and I went and confirmed it in an afternoon or whatever, and it was a lion killed a horse and it was three days old or whatever. So I would go there the next day and, and part of the advantage of me for here being here my whole life is that I know all the geography I'm pretty intimate with this part of the world and so when I when a guy's having problems with a lion in a certain place if that lion hasn't pulled plum out of the country I've got a pretty good idea where to go look to start that thing yeah now not necessarily where it'll be laid up but you know lions are definitely even though they're they're they do use massive amounts of real estate and they move tremendous distances overnight sometimes but they are pretty habitual about the places that they use when they're in a part of the country. And so like I could go to a ranch I hadn't been to for three years and I can go there and say, you know, if he had a problem on this part of this ranch, I could go hunt in a certain mountain or a certain set of canyons or whatever. And there's a good chance if that lion's been on that in there within a day or two that we'd find some sign of him. And, and that's how you go forth and, uh, and do business. And you might, you might, you know, and it depends if it's a male, you know, like a tom lion, you know, toms scratch quite a bit with their back feet, and that's how they kind of communicate with other lions, or at least we think that's what mm-hmm. they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so you might go find some sign and some scratches, and, and lions generally scratch the direction they're traveling. And so you might have an idea, even if they could only wag their tail and bark in a protected spot, it's like, hey, this lion's pulled out of here, headed to the east or whatever. The next day, that would tell me where to go look. So you'd start further down, maybe the next day. I, I maybe, I maybe would start. You know, it, it, I, I don't go try and catch the wrong lion. But uh, once I kind of got a line on them, I don't really care how far they go because, you know, it's not uncommon for a lion in this country to go thirty air miles. Really? You know? wow. Yeah, that's very common. W- w- do you? So I've hunted off a. Uh, mules for bears with dogs and and this guy would free cast his dogs and he wanted them to stay pretty much within sight until they jumped and started trailing like yeah uh, is that is that about right so you're kind of keeping them yeah they they learn they learn to key off of you and buddy already hit on it but you know dogs uh warner glenn told me one time a long time ago that uh the lion hunter gets to be the brains of the pack and that's excusing that lion hunters have any brains at all. And I'm going to apologize to all my friends because I think we're all a little short on that department. But uh, those dogs learn to hunt. Uh, another statement that I never forgotten, it was told to me early in my hunting career, is that you don't go hunt with dogs, they go hunt with you. Mm-hmm. And so that that that's in my mind every day that they they need to hunt with me. Yeah. You know, yeah. they uh, dogs can do a lot of wonderful things, but uh, in all honesty, when it comes right down to it, what hound dogs can do better than us is they can smell better and run faster. Uh, a hound dog will start a lion track, whichever direction it's pointed. Uh, so what that means, if we rode south right from my house right here and went up this canyon 
and a lion had come from the south going north and we hit that head on my dogs are going to trail it backwards mm-hmm. uh they they honestly and the older a track is the harder it is for mm-hmm. them to tell i feel like if you tee into one that's real fresh if you're having a really good week i'd say more times than not they might go the right way but boy i'll tell you what uh I have never met a professional lion, dry ground lion hunter that's told me that they had a dog that wouldn't trail one backwards. Mm-hmm. And I wow. would be pretty suspect if somebody told me they had one that wouldn't. Mm. Mm. That's Just, that's really good to hear because you, you would think that, ah, oh, a dog that, you know, traveling backwards wouldn't be a good dog. But some of your be- you're saying some of your best dogs would travel all backwards. All of them. Everyone. Every that's I've, really I've never good owned- Will they turn it around? So I will tell you this. Uh you know, part of, part of that hunting deal, one of the things I've seen after doing this for as long as I have now is that the longer you do it and the more, uh, you know, the more pieces of that puzzle you can put in your toolbox, you find out that sometimes you're, most of the time that you're not near as smart as you thought you were when you started. And some days I make it back home and I think, man, I can't believe they pay me to do this because I kind of got my tail handed to me today. <laughs> uh, but one thing I would tell you is that uh, really good lion dogs. If you went and hunted with all the my mentors and friends that do this, the one thing that you'd find out is that all all those people's dogs have a really good handle on them. I mean, you could call them off a track, you can turn them around, you can, you know, you can call them back from a lion they have made in a bluff, so you can deal with it or whatever. I mean, mm. they they have that kind of handle on them. But Buddy asked something, and I, you know. I think a dog, if a dog hits a lion track, part of the deal in this country is is that lion tracks will have big gaps in them where they can't trail it. Uh, I mean, they don't just smell it every three feet. I mean, I've seen right. places where a dog can't smell a lion track in tough conditions for 200 yards okay. at all. Right. And then they'll go along and they'll smell it where that lion walked under a, a bluff line and rubbed on a rock or, or walked through a thick patch mm. of mahoganies or scratched under a juniper tree. Uh Dogs that really want to turn a track around would have a tendency to want to stop in that bad place and turn around, and a lot of times that would be a mistake. Uh, the one thing I will tell you, though, is if you just hit a lion track, if you rode up a canyon or hit a saddle or a ridge and you start a lion track and you go trotting along there on your horse or your mule and you find the track and see you're the, you're the right way, uh, If you're certainly if you ride across two or three scratches, and I keep saying that, but male lions make scratches with right, their back yeah. feet under trees or under bluff lines, and you see a track and you're backwards, you're going to turn them around. But I'll tell you the one thing that the one instance that you don't want to do that is uh, – you know, your guy will look and look and look for a lion track forever, and then you, you don't find one for 10 days, and then you get to a place and there's been a couple of lions or they've got a kill, and there's lion tracks going every direction of the compass. And I don't overhandle my dogs in that situation because mm. I, I can tell you this. I have had, when I've had numerous dogs out, I've had dogs trailing lion tracks three different directions all at the same time. Mm. and you don't know which one is right and i think at that point you do i mean if 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 three of them just pull way out of the country i mean at some point you're going to have to make a decision about what you want to do but i have i have learned over the years that that's something that uh i think sometimes when you overhandle your dogs in a situation like that i think sometimes they almost they'll get confused and they almost want to quit you because they they don't know what you're telling them to do right right and, and on our side 
that happens a lot because I don't get to see a track. Like I, I rarely. Can, there's no scratching. I mean, you, you can't see yeah. the things that he gets to see riding a mule behind the dogs and seeing the track layout where yeah. where we are. It's brush. I mean, it, it, they may go down a road and they pick their head up and they're gone. And I mean, you you've hunted that country. Like you're not finding a track in there. You know, right, even if yeah. you try. And so I have to let the dogs tell the story and and. And they do learn to turn around, but I'm not going through big holes in a track like that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a lot. Um, I may get pieces here, but they, they absolutely will turn around when, you know, sometimes in the snow, I'll see the track going there and, and I got to bite my tongue. Cause I'm like, I'll let them go the other way. You know what I mean? And I just got to, I, you know, sometimes when you're with somebody, they see the snow and they're like, Oh, it's going the wrong way. And I'm like, no, just, just I, let them do Let them do. I don't thing. get it. I don't get, you know, it's easy to see the track and, want to drive that and for someone like you you have to because that you know you're doing it for a job for me i gotta sit back and i'm like go backwards for a little while you know what i mean sit there and learn like, something damn they went a long ways and, and finally yeah. they'll make them turn around they'll come back up and like now try that way and yeah you know but they have to learn that but it, you know yeah i don't know that um i i, I know for a fact i would not be as successful in and my success is diminished by some. doing that but i gotta let them because because if if I want to go out in September, I just don't have that option. So right, I that you know, makes I, sense. I have to try to learn to read the dogs, and and if they peter out, I may tell them, hey, let's. And I'll try to get them to go the other way, or you know, you have to mentally make a picture that you can't see. Yeah, John. So a lot of people when they hear hounds having a handle on them, which means they would just be, you know, well behaved, well behaved. Um, people think of like bird dogs, like uh, you know, like they've got this dog trained to sit and stay and point and, you know, do all this stuff. That's not necessarily the case with a hound. No, but are I, you, are you doing hands-on training with a young dog? So I, I, I'll tell you, not when they're super young. I, honestly, what I teach my dogs that uh, the first thing I teach them and the only thing that I absolutely teach them in life that is a hundred percent absolute is no. And no means whatever you're doing, including eating, you better stop. Mm. So I teach my dogs if I say no to stop eating. Mm. And I figure if you can make a hound dog not eat, you can tell them to do no and they'll <laughs> do anything. And the other thing is to to come to me. Mm. Uh, and and I'll tell you, with the new tracking systems that we have now, thanks to Buddy and Garmin, man, it, 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 you can take 20 dogs out. And unless you want to have a quote-unquote dog wreck, you won't have one. Uh, yeah. Because you can, it just literally makes it where you, you don't have to worry about that. And uh, anyway, but uh, a handle to me is that when I call a dog, because if my dogs start a track, for instance, and they go, you know, up a canyon or something, and I go along their horseback a half a mile and I find it and we're backwards, if those dogs can hear me and I'm calling them to come here, they had better get to me. Mm -hmm. I don't care what they're doing because I'm calling them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually, you don't want to do anything negative to them, but I've, I've used the vibration uh, system sure. on those tone. or the tone. And, and cause I'll call them if they can hear me and I know they hear me and they're not paying as much attention as cause they, you know, they, they definitely want to trail that thing and catch it. I'll, I'll holler at them and I have a certain way to holler and my dogs, any of these grown dogs at my house, they know if I go to holler and add them on a lion track going the other way, they know that dad wants them to go the other way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's, that makes sense. I, I, when I first heard about some of the big game guys having, 
being able to call their dogs off a track. I remember when I first started learning more about big game hunting, I was, I almost couldn't believe it. You know, how could you have a handle on a dog that's long ways away, but with the, with the garments and the tone features, it's, it's not as big a deal to train them. To, no. To and, and, to and, but they honestly, most of my grown ones, I don't have to do that. If they can hear my voice and I holler at them, they'll yeah. come, they'll come to me no matter what they're doing. Well, I want to, I want to talk to you about, uh, I want to talk to you about your mules, but even before we get there, what is the, like, John, as much as you do this and because you've done it for a living, I mean, is there, there's got to be some magic inside of lion hunting. I mean, like, what is, what is it about lion hunting that is? I would tell you at this point in my life, uh, the two things that draw me to those mountains every day are. Uh, to be where they live, yeah, and then to watch those dogs do what they were built to do, yeah. Uh, that that's the two. I, I mean, don't get me wrong; I need to catch them for a living, yeah. Uh, but I uh, I have just as good a day when I trail an old track all day and don't get it jumped up because that that's what makes those young dogs. So you and, still and, love it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'd pretty much rather do that than anything. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It, what, man, just, you got to be tough to do what you do. Well, I don't know if I'm tough or not. Like I said, I think, I think most of us, and like I said, no offense to my mentors, but I think most of us lion hunters are a, are a little short on that gray matter thing. Cause we all work way more hours than we get paid for and, and stuff like that. But it's that call to go do that. That I think, I mean, makes you people... might, you might set out six days in a row I mean, yeah, like, two in the morning. So yeah, so yeah, buddy was he was telling us he was yeah, like the, if the time John's... you want to get a hold of Don, you know, like we were on the mountain, we were actually camped up on top of a mountain. You know, we, me and Bradley pi- pi- hiked into this place, and and I, I always joke I look like a nineteen eighties catalog because you know, here's Clay <laughs> with his first light tent and all this like high tech gear, and and I got a big old duffel bag sleeping bag for me and Bradley. And <laughs> anyways, you know, we were talking about it, and I said I'll call, I can call John and. And it was six thirty in the morning, and I'm like, most of the time you're like, yeah, we wake. It's like, nope, John's not. If he's, oh, yeah. if he's, you don't call him before that time, you probably won't get him. You know what I mean? You got to get him. So on you, the- you want to be somewhere at daylight, yeah, with the dogs out, and you might have a two hour drive, and you got to load mules and twenty dogs, so you might wake up at two a.m. Yeah, to say- get to somewhere by daylight. Yes, like wow. tomorrow. I mean, tomorrow, that's incredible. I'll, tomorrow I'll get up about two. To get to where I need to be at the time I need to be there, and by six thirty he'll be out of cell phone service. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> no. By actually, I was home today, so tomorrow by four thirty I'll be out of cell yeah. service. How do you deal with the grind, John? Just the the grind of that. Uh, let me. I it's told not- my son. I told my son the other day. We were. I can't remember what we were doing. Maybe we were loading our mules, and I said, I said, this is the hard part. I said it's going to be easy when we get on the mountain. And start hunting and having a good time. And when the sun comes up, like that's what everybody wants to do. Sure. The hard part is waking up early and, and the work that is involved in getting there. And I said, so, cause I, I think I was, I was singing or joking or something. And I was like, you gotta, you gotta find a way to make this part fun. Cause this is the part that people do. And then decide they don't want any part of this because how much work it is. Yeah, they want to, you know, get out and experience, you know, 
Be daylight a cow- a cowboy. Well, and not even with mules, just in yeah, hunting. No. Like you know, as soon as the sun starts to come up and you realize where you're at and you're hunting, you know, it's like, oh, this is awesome. It's all the other stuff that's hard. How do you deal with the the grind of it, John? I don't see that as a grind. I I, okay. I, I I'll tell you that it's kind of funny, but I'll still, even after all these years, you know, I'll get a call and and my wife teases me all the time, but you know, somebody will call me and go, oh, you know, well, we had a. Uh, like a brand new lion kill at such and such. And and I, I mean, most of those days that happens. I mean, I wake up way before my alarm clock goes off, even after all these years. You're excited. I'm just tickled. Yeah. Really? Or yeah. he's not mentally sane. Well, well, <laughs> well no, I already told you that. That's, that's, we, that was a given. <laughs> I think, I think, I, I, I mean, again, uh, people that are, are, dedicated to what they do and and really love doing it i think that's the deal because no one would do what any of us uh, all my friends that do this for a living and buddy and that it's not a money thing yeah if it was a money thing for what i make you would go do something different yeah uh but it's just that you know lion uh, you know a pack of lion dogs in a saddle you'll take you to places that nobody else goes Mm -hmm. uh and 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 you never know even though a lot of days are the same they're all different Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that's definitely the part of, you know, I, it, all lion hunters get to watch the sun come up a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a that's a pretty big blessing. And just going and being in the country that those things call home, you know, even uh, a lot of these ranches I hunt on. Uh, the one thing I'll tell you, I kind of already told you that, but uh, if somebody's never went before. I always tell them, like, we'll unload a certain place. And I said, hey, we're going to, you know, go look at this. And, yeah, if we get after a lion, we're going to end up likely over in this part of the world. And they'll look at that and they go, oh, my gosh, that's like the roughest. And I go, yeah. I go, so I can tell you that the roughest, steepest, nastiest part of any mountain is where you're likely going to end up on a lion hunt because that's the kind of places that they you know, that they try to seek refuge and they lay up in the daytime. And a lot of times that's where your dogs catch them. And a good friend of mine, the first few times I took him hunting with me, I didn't tell him that part, but I'd always tell him, I go, yeah, you know, if we get after one, we're going to end up in the worst part of this whole mountain. And then several times over the years, we did that. Finally, one day we're riding along and he goes, there's something you're not telling me about this. Cause every time you say that and we get after one, that's exactly where we end up. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I go, well, then I let him in the, uh, Lions choose those kind of places to lay up in the yeah. daytime, and that's where your dogs jump them. Uh, so that's where they're yeah. going to end up. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, to to people that love doing this, it's not a grind. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. You know, uh, the bookwork part of my job is a grind. That's not much fun. And yeah. I wasn't very good at electronic stuff, and I'm still not. I have Buddy's number on Speed Doll. Well, I call him all the well, time. Wait till I, you get the Buddy unit, the Buddy Garmin. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to have a – you'll be able to text Buddy directly from it. <laughs> There's a little button there, and we'll just have to pop in. Yeah. A video yeah, call with Buddy the surcharge on the Garmin. For John. I'm like, i got to get a mule. So John, gotta take care yeah. of my tell mule. Me about, uh, tell me about your mules. Um, so – You've got four mules. We helped you catch them up out here and put yep. them in a different pasture. Uh, do you? Uh, I, I always ask people this that that prefer mule, and I don't know if you prefer mules or not. But like, what's the difference between a mule and a horse, and why are you riding mules? So actually, have, you have one horse. I have three mules and a horse. Um, why? Why the horse? You didn't have the horse. Last I, I I didn't. So uh, again, uh, thanks to the Derringers. Uh, the, Horses and mules are definitely different uh, in many ways. Uh, a mule, for the most part, if you have a really good one, uh, you can use them more days in a row. 
okay. they're they're physically tougher. They they get that hybrid vigor. I mean, it's not a animal of God's creation, and they they you know we've kind of built those, and they they're they're tougher. I mean, they they physically are tougher, and yeah. I think they get that from the donkey side of their th- of 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 that. And good ones are really good. Uh, the horse that I have, his name is General, and and that horse was raised in the mountains of southern Arizona, and uh, spent his young days hunting lions. A, a real good friend of the Derringers actually raised that horse, mm. and moved to Central Oregon and got to hunting with me a little bit when he had a day here and there. And I, one of my really good old mules, there's a picture of him on the wall right there, died a couple years ago and uh, had to put him down. He got ring bone at 20 anyway. And so I was looking for something to replace him with. And uh, that horse is incredible. There's nowhere that I would ride a mule. I wouldn't ride that horse. Hmm. Uh, That being said, most horses that are raised in environments, not like that are not like that. Uh, and in lion hunting, and I wish you guys would be here longer that we could go make a little circle together, but, uh, lion hunting, you travel a lot of really tough topography and, uh, really rough country and, and, uh, animals that, that aren't, that, that can't, you know, watch where they put their feet and get around and stuff. Cause are a real liability, uh, cause you're, yeah. I'm out by myself most of the time. And I mean, there's a lot of places you certainly wouldn't want one to fall down with you or whatever. So, yeah. uh, mules are tougher. You can use them more days in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say mules are stubborn mules. What, what I found out about mules is mules are very self-preservationistic mm-hmm. and there's not a big enough pair of spurs in the world to make a mule do something that'll hurt itself. Mm. A horse we're going to remember uh, that quote, Colby. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's a true story. Yeah. Uh, a horse, somebody that, a horse that trusts you and and you trust it and you're a good rider and you own him. I think you can talk a horse into doing something that maybe it might, shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mule, you're just not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be an irritation because mules can, sometimes mules decide they don't want to do things that are perfectly okay to do. Right. Uh, and at that point, then you have to, get them to believe in that you are the boss of the deal and that they need to do, they don't have a choice in the matter. Yeah. Uh, all of our, all the stock that I have here, you can haul a lion hide or a whole lion on them. They don't care about that. They don't kick at dogs. You know, my dogs use them for shade. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, you know, they're, but, but these are ones, you know, our dogs are so valuable to us. You have to be really careful about that. Cause there certainly are mules that are, you know, really don't care for dogs. And when you turn yeah. 20 of them loose in the dark in the morning and they're running underneath them and stuff, they could yeah. cause you to have some kind of a backcountry rodeo. Do you, do you have any uh, tips for me? I've got a five-year-old mule that I'm training and she's hauled out three bears for me, maybe four. Wow. But she's, uh, she doesn't like it, John. Uh, I think it's all just conditioning. Just keep, I, just keep getting it on her. I, I, I really believe that. I think it's just like our dogs. And I'll tell you, uh, if you could have a bear like around your corral, uh, and, a I mean, pet I, bear, no, <laughs> so a, bear like a, a bear hide that's yeah. green. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I've done and, that. uh, I mean, I might even go so far as to just take some grain and stuff and put it on that bear hide. And if the mule wanted to eat it, I'd have to eat it off the bear. He's hide. reading our playbook. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm done with it. Yeah. I, she's, you know, I can get a bear hide on her, but it's touch and go. And a few times out there, we thought we weren't going to get it on her, but we did. Mm-hmm. And so what I did when I got back home from those hunts, when I had a green hide, I got to where I was draping the hide over a fence post yep. and then using a feed bucket and just make her and just walk away. 
Exactly. Just, just leave it. Just walk away yeah. and make her overcome that fear. Mm-hmm. But she still, she, you know, I thought maybe we'd do that one or two times and she'd just be like, ah, whatever. She's still kind of snorting. It takes, it takes mules a long, you know, I, I don't know how long you've had her, but, or the mule, but right. it takes mules a long time to get to know you and trust you. Yeah. And, and some of them, and I, and, and I'm not a professional mule trainer by any stretch, although I do use them a lot, but I think if you're not apprehensive about something and you just like uh, that big Levi mule that we took the very first day I rode him in the mountains, I hauled a lion on him. Really? He didn't I just have took him up. No. And I, I mean, I, you I didn't act like it was a big deal. No, I, it wasn't a big deal to me. And I just took him up to him and he didn't react too bad. So we just scotched him up short to a mahogany bush and loaded it on him and away we went. Yeah. So I, That's I, good. I but that can cause you to have wrecks too. You need to be careful with yeah. them because they're big powerful. So, um, which which is a smoother ride, the horse or the mule? You know, the ones I have that are about the same. Uh, okay. it, it, I, I'll tell you, in really, really, really tough country, uh, but it's not fair because my mules have more miles on them than the horse I own right now. But uh, Sam Derringer and his dad, Scott, the fellows I learned how to hunt from, they they do own some mules now, but the first several decades I knew them, uh, they hunted completely off horses, but they raised those horses in that tough country and they hunted off them every day. And, and those horses were, you know, were raised in that. Uh, but I would tell you the mules that I have, the, the difference you'd notice if you went hunting with me is like, uh, the, the two of the mules that I have definitely can walk out faster in really rocky country. Okay. That, yeah, they mm. can. And I, and I don't know if that's just because my mules have, tens of thousands of miles of that kind of riding on them yeah. or it's where, because I'm not, as I, like I said, I don't really raise them myself. Right. I get them as yeah. a semi-trained thing and then I tune them into one. Well, I had a, so hold on. I'm, I'm glad you recircle on that. My question, I think I know the answer. You said you don't train mules. It's just because when you get out there, you, you need, need to hunt. You need to ride. It's not like a dog. You can train a dog because you, right. you know that you have the pack. But is that why you don't train mules? It so is. And, buy and train it is. Mules. And I, and I, I mean, they're, they are, and you can have a wreck on any of them, but the, the thing I would tell you about the mules I get is they, you know, they've been to the mountains and they've been to all that stuff. I mean, they haven't hunted lions and they haven't been in and out of my horse truck. There's a lot of things I have to teach them, but we know that they got a pretty good disposition and they're not going to just try and be, you know, counterfeit and try and buck you off every time you ride around a hill and stuff like that. And that being said, I'll tell you, they're, uh, as you well know, I mean, it's just like dogs and people and everything else. You can say what something has done in the past, uh, but I would safely say with even my really good dogs and, and these mules and horses and everything, I, I think you would be l- less than smart to say what they would do. You can say what they usually do, right? but you never know. Even the good ones. Even the good ones. Yes. So you are you comfortable telling us about your train? In, in my podcast... We always have a train wreck story. Can I can I take it over? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Let's hear your train wreck story. Let's hear uh, a good train either either with dog. You already kind of told us one about the, the lion that got away. I mean, was, oh yeah, it was yeah. a short train. It was like five four train wrecks and then a good one. But yeah, but you had a, a spill because I know you were you got hurt really bad. Oh yeah, I can certainly tell you about mm. that. Uh, so all the decades I've been doing this, I've only got hurt one time. I mean, bad. Uh, I've, all of us get little dings and scratches now and then, but, uh, anyway, I had got a mule from a fella, uh, that's not normally where I get them from. And, uh, 
I would say I'm not a cowboy or a, you know, a rodeo guy or anything like that, but I can pilot one of those things around a mountain pretty good as many days as I, I've spent I on them. I imagine. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, I got this mule and, and I'll just tell you this, that it was probably misrepresented. Uh, that's, uh, that's what I'm going to tell you. Hmm. And the very first day that I took this mule out to hunt off of it, uh, I had wrote, I'd, I'd kept it a couple of weeks, got to know it. We got him shod. I rode him right here behind the house for just a few minutes. Uh, I could tell he wasn't going to kick at the dogs and stuff. So it's like, okay. So a uh, young man with me, that's a trapper for us. He doesn't have dogs or mules or anything. Uh, went and looked at a lion complaint and it was a legitimate one. And he asked if I'd come down and help him. And so I had this mule, his name was Jim. And uh, I thought, well, you know what? That'd be a good day for Jim to go on his first lion hunt. So I took one of my good mules for the young man to ride, and I rode this new mule. So this is the first day I rode him out in the hills and last. Uh, you'll find out why with the end of the story. <laughs> Train wreck. It, it, yeah, no, it's a, it, it has a happy ending. I'm still here, though. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so we unloaded, uh, unloaded, collared up the dogs, started out a ridge, and that mule, the first big rock pile we got to, he kind of balked and didn't want to go through it. And so I talked to him the way you talk to mules with your spurs and whipped him down one side and the other and told him he needed to do that. And he did. And then I got off him and led off a big ridge into a big canyon. And man, he led better than any, almost any mule I've ever owned or been around. I mean, he was just like a puppy dog. I mean, he just, he didn't pull and there was no slack. There was just the right amount of slack in your reins. I thought, man, this mule leads really good. And I was like, so that's a good thing, right? <laughs> so there was, that was a warning. That was a that yeah, was a clue, probably. Yeah, probably. But anyway, so we get down the bottom of that canyon and we start up it, and uh, we start up that canyon. hadn't hit any lion signs, so that we we didn't catch a lion this day. So it's not a story about a dog wreck. I can, although I could tell you lots of those too. Uh, but anyway, so we start up there, and uh, uh, this mule I had to make him go around a big cow shade fir tree that the limbs were real low and the trail went under like an elk trail and i made him go around he kind of threw a fit and wanted to drag me through that and i didn't mm. let him do that and anyway we topped out on top of the mountain uh which wasn't a, much of a climb maybe 800 feet in elevation and we're going to go up this ridge and go into a saddle behind a little mountain that those lions use a lot in that country and i pointed him up that hill and boy he had just had all of that he was going to have and my friend he was behind me and that mule took off running backwards uh, and uh, tried to about 30 miles an hour and tried to run me under a big tree. So I got mm. him turned off that, and then he steamed off the mountain while I finally got him stopped and turned him around and paddled his hind in and got back up there where it was. Well, anyway, the second time he did that, he actually took off running backwards about 50 feet past where he started it the first time, and he actually ran in, my friend, on my good mule. And so I, I, I got him spun around, and he ran off the mountain with me, and I got him stopped. And I, I said, we need to get out of here. This mule's going to hurt someone. And so I got off that mule, and I led him all the way off the mountain, all the way down, and then up the little side draw that we had unloaded in. And we were on, we were on the old road that we had went up. Uh, with the truck to unload. So you had walked him off the mountain. Yeah, I'd walked him like two miles. And so we were a quarter of a mile from the truck, which was fortunate for me. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I don't like mules to win battles. And I knew it wasn't yep. going to keep him anyway. And I thought, you know what? And I thought about it. I, I, I mean, I'm telling you, I, to this day, I remember exactly my thought. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to walk him clear to that truck. I'm going to make him pack me this last quarter of a mile. And I thought, you know, the worst thing this mule's going to do is he's going to have a runaway to the truck because yeah. he knows it's there. Yeah, yeah. 
And so anyway, but I was wrong again. Mm-hmm. You don't always want to think. Man, this, sto- this story is making putting knots in my well, stomach. Well, mm-hmm. anyway, because so I know I, I know the feet. So I so I so I sli- so I swing up on this mule, and uh, my friend was right behind me, and I go to ride him up this old road trail thing, and there's a big bank on my left. And uh, that mule goes about five steps and grabs that bit in his mouth and does the runoff backwards thing. Well, we're gonna... going away from the truck. Yes. But it, as that's happening, he's kind of at an angle and we're going to go off a big bank backwards. Well, you know, you don't want to do that because he's probably going to flip over backwards and center punch me at the saddle horn. So I reached up and grabbed a hold of his left rein, pulled his head right in my lap. And I got him pretty well squared around before he went off the bank of this old trail that we're on and then it's real steep and rocky and stuff well anyway when he and it takes a long time to tell it but in the time that it took me to tell you that i mean that mule went from you know two miles an hour forwards to about 25 backwards and when you say backwards you mean backing up yes like yes he's running backwards with me I, like he's not going oh, forward; okay. he's running backwards. Okay, see, I misunderstood. I thought you were just saying he turned around. Oh no, no, no! He car was in reverse back. A car in reverse going backwards. Yeah, I've only that's the only one I've ever had do it. Because uh, I've he, had him turn around and run. Oh off no, no, no! Him. This he was running backwards. Like he just oh. grab his bit in his mouth and just run as <laughs> fast as he could. Because I'm sure he had probably at some time in his life unloaded someone doing that. Mm-hmm. Mules are fairly intelligent about that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I got him turned around. I, I grabbed his head. I pulled his head around my lap. I got him pretty well squared off around before he went off the bank. And this takes a long time to tell. Anyway, and, and as he's going off that bank, I've rode enough. I mean, I knew this is going to be a pretty violent crash going off the bank. So I had my shoulders clear back on the spider ring of his bridge. And so I have a lot of slack in my reins. And when that son of a gun hit the bottom of that bank, he bu- he busted in half, and I got a lot of slack in my reins, and I'm way back. Anyway, I stayed on for about four hops, and he got me launched off on that hillside. And when I landed, I landed on a big rock on my left side, and I broke eight ribs and mm. punched a hole in my lung and mm. separated my left shoulder. Anyway, so so that's my wreck. But you know what? Uh, uh, God was looking out for me, and my friend was with me. And uh, I, I'll tell you an interesting thing in this story, I, and I obviously lived through it because I'm here telling you that, but I had all my journeyman dogs with me, and I'll tell you an interesting part of that story. So I never had that happen to me in my life. And and when I hit that rock, I didn't go unconscious, but I certainly was addled pretty bad, and I couldn't pay attention to things for a minute or so. And I find this super interesting because those dogs have hunted with me every day of their lives, and there were several dogs there that were six and a half to nine years old mm. and that mule continued to buck down that mountain without me and and it was obvious that i got hurt and those dogs bathed that mule in a mahogany patch and wouldn't let him run off <laughs> is that right i mean now i didn't i wasn't cognizant enough to tell you that but he said he's caught lots of lions with me he's hunted with me quite a little bit because we worked together and he said you know those dogs knew that that mule hurt you. And he goes, I've never heard them sound like that. They, he goes, if they could have got that mule down on the ground, they would have done bad things to him. Hmm. So those dogs, all the hmm. days they spend with you, they knew that what happened there wasn't okay. Anyway, I didn't hunt for eight months. Longest time of my life I didn't hunt. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, I got healed up from it, and I'm pretty well back to. Uh, when was that, John? Uh, April 20th of 2018. So mm. pretty recently. Yeah, and I didn't hunt until August 1st of that year. Wow. So Did that scare you? You know, honestly, not that bad. I mean, I knew I was hurt. Like, I, I mean, when I tried to stand up, my whole side felt like a bag of broken tortilla chips, and I couldn't breathe and stuff. But, I, you know, 
Not really. And and I'll tell did you. It, did it scare you to get back on a mule? No, absolutely not. Really? I, I mean, I wouldn't have rode that one again. But, no, my boss, actually, I'll tell you an interesting thing. He come by my house to see how I was doing, and I wasn't obviously very physically active because I couldn't hardly move. And he goes, is that going to make you not want to go hunting? I said, dude, if I could get on one of those things, i go hunting right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. no. No, yeah. it didn't bother me at all. Yeah. Not mentally there. <laughs> Keep yeah. going back to it. I already you told gotta you. you got to have a screw loose. Everybody's got to have that screw loose. John's well, got you know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing that you uh, have ridden – as much as you have, and and I know the crazy places and situations that you'd be in with these mules and dogs that you hadn't been hurt before. I mean that that t- tells me how good of a rider you are. Um, man, yeah, that's a, I've gone with it. It's impressive. My, for I'm me. looking I, at my notes here to see if I have any other questions. I, yeah. I had a few. I had a few. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's been like I said, I. The first time, whenever I talked to John, and he's like, "Well, here's the deal. I'll buy it." And you know, he's got twenty dogs. He's a pretty good customer. You know what I mean? Like, you kind of <laughs> want those customers when they got twenty dogs. You're like, "All right, we'll take that one." You know, don't let that one go to some other competitor. And he's like, "But you got to come here and show me how to use it." And I, I've told you, Cole, I don't, I don't like traveling. I'm, I'm not a big, I'm not a real big social guy. I mean, honestly, I, I, mean, I, I have people I, I, I do like and I enjoy and I have friends, but. I'm not on this life to make as many friends as I can. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little apprehensive Wait till that Garmin buddy comes out. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta, but, you know, so, but I mean, this guy is just genuine. You know what I mean? You, you mm-hmm. just, I mean, I'm sure you can feel it. You can just yeah. feel that this is a really good guy. And yeah, for sure. And he knows what he's, you know, not only his experience, but just yeah. as a, he always says, as a human, this, you know, John's just a, a Good human. Really good human. Good yeah. human. Yeah. As he yeah. always says. So yeah. no doubt. I, I've, I enjoy my time over here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. It truly yeah. has. And yeah. I, you know, I, I, I love to hunt. I love to, I love hounds. I have hounds myself. We, but when I sit with somebody that I know is the real deal and has spent their lifetime it's it's always an honor to me to get to interview somebody like you. So I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time to do this with us today. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Really valuable. Yeah. Well, we'll have to, uh, man, my, John, I do a lot of bear hunting, but cats are like, I, I'm fascinated with lions Yeah, and, uh, and and hunting them with hounds, and I've I've only done it a couple of times. So I I, I but uh, no, I have a ton of respect for big game hunters that are just people that have dedicated their life to something, right? And, it, and have made it a really dove into the craft of becoming an expert. And uh, you you have such a unique life in that uh, you've made it your living, and uh, something that you get to. It's a that's that's a rare thing. So yeah, yeah. Incredible. I've been very blessed. I'm super lucky to get to do what I do for a living. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, buddy, any any closing thoughts? No, man. I I was just sitting back and I've heard some of these stories before, but I I just enjoyed it. Well, the thing about this is we could punch the stop button and like take a break and go and have <laughs> this exact you know another conversation. 
Oh, there's so without, much more. Yeah, there's so yeah, much more. We'll just have to wait. We'll have to, we'll yeah. have to come back and do it yeah. again. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. We always end the podcast by saying keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. Yep. And the mountain lions. And the mountain lions. Yep. Yeah. And a mountain man on, the, on a mule somewhere chasing. That's right. <laughs> that's right.